Hello and welcome to Boothcast. This Boothcast is brought to you by the Sean Partners Race Week. Now, if you haven't heard about it already, it is the biggest paddling event uh, on the calendar this year, both I think domestically and internationally. There's $200,000 worth of prize money. There's five different paddling events. You've got uh, the, the, the West Coast downward at the start of the week. Then you've got the Sunset Series. You've got a prone paddle event. You've got an Ironman event. You've got a sprint dash for cash. You've got a doctor. You've got a whole bunch of different racing going on. So you want to be here November 21 to 28. If you want to find out more, check out oceanpaddler.com. Now I'm going to throw you over to my interview with Ken Wallace. Hello and welcome to Boothcast. On Boothcast, I speak to people about sport, business and the winning mindset. Today's guest is Kenny Wallace, OAM. He is a three-time Olympian. He is an Olympic gold medalist. He has two Olympic bronze medals. He's a seven-time world championship uh, gold medalist. He is an all-around amazing athlete and I am very lucky to have him on today. So Ken, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Bethy. Cheers, mate. It's good to having a chat. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to give us a little bit of a snapshot to the viewers of who you are, uh, what you do and uh, how it all came about. The, the easiest way to put it is I sit in a little skinny boat and try to get from here to there as fast as I can. <laughs> a really unstable skinny boat. But um, I, I paddle and race a sprint flatwater kayak. Uh, I grew up in the surf and um, that eventually evolved into going into an Olympic games i always thought i'd go to the olympics but i thought it'd be for swimming instead and uh i'm at the pretty much the end of my professional career if you want to call it that um and yeah i'm been part of the australian team for the better part of two decades now so yeah it's uh, been an amazing career to follow and obviously i've been lucky enough to train with you for a few sessions here and there and it's been amazing to watch your journey someone i've aspired to be like but um, it all started, uh, you're born in Gosford in New South Wales, which I only just realised before we came on air because I did a bit of, bit of reading into who you are. Um, <laughs> when did, so when you were growing up in Gosford, did you, did you live there for a long period of time? And were you a competitive uh, kid as well? Uh, I was. Uh, I grew up swimming. My older sister, Frances, she swam and she was really quite successful and made some, a couple of Australian teams and so forth. Um, but so I was always getting dragged around to the swimming pools. And you know, it, it was great. That's how I learned how to train. And for me, it was just part of life. I just thought, this is what you do. I didn't know anything, know anything different. I think I've still got like five years and under 25 meter freestyle records at Tookley Pool and stuff like that, which is pretty funny. But um, we moved up to the Gold Coast when I was 11 years old. Um, and it yeah, kind of never, never really looked back uh, just for, here on the Gold Coast for what we do. There's so many opportunities and, and surf life-saving and everything. But it's, the funny part is it's when I was growing up in Gosford is, so one of my best mates now, and always was, was Dane Hurst and Kai Hurst. Uh, it's funny, there's photos of me and Dane hanging out of a tree down the end of Gosford swimming pool when we were like five years old and, and stuff whilst, you know, Kai was swimming and my older sister was swimming and stuff like that. So it's pretty cool. But um, yeah, moved to the Queensland when I was 11. I moved to the beach at Talabudra. And one day I saw nippers going on down the, at Talabudra Surf Club. And I didn't know what it was. And I thought, oh, pretty, pretty cool to go have a go at this. And I went down there and I asked, oh, can I, can I join in? And they just turned around and said, yeah, yeah, no worries. Can, can you swim? I went, yeah, I can swim. Like, I was pretty 
confident in swimming. And the, um, they said, yeah, no worries. I went out, did the swim race, won the swim, and I was kind of not half expected it, but I was like, oh, yeah. So, yeah, that's cool. And then went out, won the board race. I went, oh, okay. Won the Ironman race. I went, how good is this? I don't even know what the sport is. And, and I was winning all these events. I was like, yeah, beauty, I'm, I'm going to keep doing this. And so all of a sudden I went, you know, that dream from wanting to go to the Olympics for swimming, uh, which is all I ever knew, kind of turned into I want to be an Ironman. And uh, I guess that's where uh, the Ironman career kind of kicked off. And I I started at Tally Surf Club for a season. Then I moved down to Chugan Surf Club with a couple of good buddies down there, good mates down there. And I'm still at Chugan now. Yeah, it seems like you've had a real uh, loyal sort of following over there at Chugan. It's been a, a pretty cool to see. And I think you've won like five Australian Taplin tiles with um, Dane, as you're speaking about, and Kai. And I'm not sure who else is in the team. Maybe Hugh Doherty, Sean Spencer, these guys. Hugh, Hugh Doherty, Troy Hipwood, Sam Hamilton. You know, it's, it's funny. There was only, at any one time, Sam Fuller, at any one time, there was only like six, maybe seven of us in the club. <laughs> um at that sort of you know at that sort of racing level type thing and so if one of us was sick we'll kind of screwed a little bit but um that was a great bunch of mates and yeah that those memories then of those five taplins uh in a row was uh, i put them right next to that olympic gold medal type thing it's it's incredible winning with your mates um in that event winning a taplin at aussies is like the the event i'd swap every other one of the individual aussie medals to get another taplin medal with them yeah it's pretty um awesome to be part of a taplin because i was lucky enough to do a few of those and i was never lucky enough to win uh, one or even five like you have but it was always awesome to run around in a team sport like that because everything you do is individual like in kayaking it's it's, you're in there you're in your own thoughts you've got to make sure that you're performing to the best of your ability and it basically it all comes down to you whereas when you're racing with your mates and you're racing with your friends, you get that little bit extra, you know, like you just oh, yeah. you that little bit more. So it must've been an awesome experience. And when you're speaking about, sorry. That's all right. I think that's what you crave. And when we grew up swimming, it's very individual and you're kind of in your own mind the whole time. And then when you're in a kayak, now besides being in a, a team boat, you're still very, like you're saying, it's very much yourself there. And when you're running around that taplin, like you're looking for that little extra bit, yeah, you're a, you would jump off the ski or I've actually had to swim a few times these days, but um, yeah, you're, <laughs> I'll come out of the water and you've got another five blokes there or four blokes there because one's on the line waiting for you. Another four blokes there. You're, you're running at full steam. You're, you're pumping them out and they're, they're yelling, I can run, run. <laughs> you're like, oh, I am, I cannot run any faster, but you're still doing it and yeah those those moments you kind of just go yeah yeah you're hanging out with your mates yeah it's interesting you're talking about swimming in your early years and i've seen you do a few uh board rescues at aussies and that type of thing and swimming out and i'd be like isn't he a kayaker like what's going (laughs) on here but now it all makes sense growing up being a swimmer well i'm lucky i've got long legs that i can still wade (laughs) i think so if i if it's a little bit of a low tide or anything i'm still good to get through and we've, we keep making Aussie board rescue finals which is hilarious I think but um, yeah. yeah at the moment last last Aussies they had me swimming again so 
Yeah, uh, mate, come back, come back at come back at thirty six years old. You'll be you'll be swimming in the tapas for your rest of your time because nobody wants to swim in those. Tapas. No one wants to swim. <laughs> no, that's it. So, um, coming back to uh, your junior stuff. So you you basically move up to the Gold Coast in ninety four. You're, you're um, starting to compete in surf lifesaving. Now you want to be an Ironman after wanting to be a swimmer and going to the Olympics for that little period of time. Do you keep swimming and then do you start um, racing more at like Australian titles uh, in the under 14s, I guess it is, and then moving through the junior ranks? Yeah, so I, my swimming always got me through my surf lifesaving. If you're a good swimmer, then you can be a good surf lifesaving. Um, I, I think the first Aussie medal was myself and Troy Hipwood. We got our first under 16 board rescue gold medal. Um, and I think we were still 14 at the time or Troy had just turned 15 maybe. And since then it just kind of evolved and one thing led to another and we're winning board relays and swim relays. And, um, and yeah, kayaking never, didn't really, wasn't really on the radar. And it was Sydney 2000 Olympics came along and it was 16, I was 16 at the time. And um, one of the guys down at the surf club, Mario von Appen, he was Olympic gold medalist from Germany. And he was coaching Troy Hipwood, one of my best mates, and also one of the closest rivals I had in doing Ironman. And he was coaching him kayaking. I went, oh, what, what's this? You know, you're, you're getting better at ski paddling. And when you're 15, 16 years old, you don't really know what ski paddling is. Like you can't yeah. even pick up the ski. You need, you need your mum or dad to help you carry it down the beach and uh, all the old blokes in the club. You can't carry it. You can't paddle it. And you know, all yeah, the rest absolutely. Of it. I copped all of that. And then um, so I started, started in the ski whilst he was in the kayak. And then he was just blitzing me because he was in the kayak. And I went down to Karaman Creek with Johnny Newton and that. And I took my first strokes in the kayak when I was 16 in... I think it was like December or January. Uh, and then I turned up and they said, oh, yeah, you, you should have a go at Aussie kayak champs. You know, it's coming up. I said, all right. That was in March, like three months later. And I turned up to under 16s and ended up winning the 500, winning the 1,000, winning the 2.5K. They turned around and said, oh, yeah, you just made the under 18 Australian team, um, except I hadn't nominated for the team, so I didn't go over. Yeah, stuff like this. I went, Ah, oh, this is a cool sport. I like this, and, you know, a bit like a bit like surf. And I went, all right, well, I'll continue doing this. And at that point in time, because of my kayaking, my ski paddling was improving, and I still wanted to be an Ironman. The Olympics for kayaking wasn't really quite on the radar yet, um, and I, yeah, still wanted to be the at the time it was Kellogg's Nutrigrain Ironman, um, and I was lucky enough that I ended up racing in that for a few years, the, how the series run has evolved and keeps changing you know, from year to year. So at one stage, it was like a um, state versus state surf sports series. And um, they put me in the South Australian Edge team at one stage. And I think I was in there with like Christy Munro, Steve Meredith, uh, you know, all Queenslanders at one yeah. stage. And yeah, so I raced in that for, I think, two or three years. And I got to, uh, during that time, I was still racing in the kayaks. Didn't really know what I was doing. I was mainly swimming and doing surf. I was only in the kayak like three mornings a week. And I went to Junior Worlds uh, in, in Brazil. And the same thing. So I was only paddling now in the kayak for about two years. 
and I went turned up the Junior Worlds and won Junior World Championships in K1 1000. So um, to this day, I'm still the only person that's won <laughs> won that event from Australia. So which is pretty cool. But at the same time, it's something that you know we look to the future that we want some young kids to to come along and take that title again. Yeah, it's awesome to hear you talk about going down to Crum and Creek and training under John Newton to start because that's exactly what I did. I, I went down there as a sort of a green young guy to get better at ocean ski paddling, actually. And I thought we sort of led different paths, but it's nice to hear that you sort of did the same thing. Were you at Palm Beach for Crumman High School as well at that period? Uh, I was at Marymount, uh, but most of my mates, you know, Dane, went, Dane had moved to Queensland as well. And Sam Hamilton was at PBC. And so we, we turned up like there's those days there where I'd put a PBC uniform on. So I think I'd turn up to their school. And then there was other days they'd stick a Marymount uniform and see how long we could get away with it and, and <laughs> yeah. stuff like that. But yeah, John Newton was one of those guys that just welcomed everyone and it didn't matter where you were from. And uh, he just wanted to see the sport grow. And as you know, to this day, like you said, you, that's where you started off paddling. And there's, there's quite a few athletes that started their career down on Caroman Creek. So yeah, it's pretty cool. It's funny now, I actually live on Caroman Creek and paddle past every day where, where we started paddling. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, it is awesome. It's a great part of the world up there on the Gold Coast. And it sounds like you didn't really take the sport too seriously when you started out. Like you were still like, like 17, 18, you see the Olympic Games and you start getting involved in kayaking, but you're still doing your swimming and your, and your Ironman type events and you're going around, running around in the neutral game, which is, I guess, what everybody would have been, would have been idolizing at that period of time as well, because yeah, you so, had the so, Uncle Toby Super Series and all that type of stuff come through. And then now you're like, oh, maybe I should take this different path, but I'm not sure. Yeah, well, we always had Kai Hurst there as well, like Dane's older brother. And so we were always you know, trying to emulate him. And, um, you know, it was surf lifesaving was still really quite big. And so, and you're, you're also, the other part is you're hanging out with your mates. You know, like it, surf lifesaving and, and kayaking, it, it's a bit different in kayaking. very isolated sometimes. You still hang out with your mates, but it's a different type of fun, I guess. Um, but in the surf, you, you just want to hang out with your buddies and have a good time. Yeah, I think surf life saving in general has a very good like camaraderie around the surf clubs, and you, and you do you get to go down at each session and hang out with your mates and have fun and talk a bit of shit and have a beer after the session. Yeah. You know that's what the, the vibe is. But kayaking, I guess, was a little bit different. So it maybe it took you a little bit further time to go and win that under eighteen gold medal um, in Brazil, as you said. What was it like when you won that race? Did you start to go, okay, this is maybe something that I want to do? Like maybe this is my Olympic opportunity? Yeah, after I'd won that race, I thought, oh, maybe I've got a chance here. I still didn't probably give it the, the credit for what it was. Like I remember the race was just this massive headwind, like massive, ridiculous headwind. And yeah, we, I'd raced like and gone 30 seconds faster, you know, the year before type thing. Like that's how it was like, sticking your head out the car window driving on the back highway type thing and so i never really kind of gave the, the race the, the credit i guess um but then when once i got home i started kiking that little bit more and it's just slowly i be, did more and more races and i was went straight from the junior australian team to the next year i went straight into the australian senior team uh, because my role i went into opens and a and I was successful enough to make it into the open team. So I remember the first time, um, so I was yeah still 18 and, and overseas and I went to my first two World Cups and in Milan was one of them. And that's where I won my first World Cup medals. 
And so I was still 18 and I was winning medals on the world stage in the Opens. I was like, oh, okay, this is, this is kind of funky at the World Cups. And I was a silver and a bronze in Milan in K2s. And then at World Championships that year, I raced with another guy, Keith Collum, and we'd won the B final. So we were top 10 in the world in seniors straight up. And we didn't really give it the credit. And that's kind of when I went, oh, this, this Olympic bit, this might be, uh, we might be on here. So that was like 2002. And then leading into Athens Olympics, 2004. So I started training a bit more for that. And I ended up fourth in the K1 1000 in the Open. So I was still young, but I was racing against the, you know, at the time it was the Clint Robinsons, the Nathan Bagleys, the Danny Collins, the uh, Ben Fooey's, you know, like the, I look at those guys and go, I count their Olympic medals and go, yeah, there's a fair few of them that stack up. Yeah. And I ended up fourth and, to make an Olympic team, it's basically winner goes. And if you're lucky, you might, they might take second place too, depending on the team makeup. So yeah, I, I, I missed Athens. Yeah, and it must have been quite difficult to be coming through to that period of time when there was so many um, successful kikers. And it's still the same now. Like the kiking program in Australia, I don't think uh, for a certain amount of years, maybe 30 years or something like that, that Australia hasn't won a medal in kiking at the Olympics. Yeah, so, so every- Every year since 1980, kayaking's won an Olympic medal. Yeah, so it's, it's a really um, competitive environment to stepping into. But how did you break down those barriers to sort of start to push in? Was it just like hard work and determination? Or was there um, a certain moment where you went, right, this is my time. Like, this, is, this is now I've got to make, it, make that next leap. Well, I had to turn it around and go, all right, in training, it's, if I'm even close to these guys, these guys are some of the best in the world. So if I'm close to them or beating them in an effort here or there or able to keep up, you know, whichever it was, then I go kind of looked at myself and went, all right, I must be close to being on the money. And it, it also worked out really well that they were hard because it made me, t- made me tough in, in a regards. Like it made me tough that I had to just keep going and just keep going, keep pushing. All right, today, I remember it was, there was one session in Belgium and we're doing wash leads over there. It's only a 2K course, so it's up and back. <laughs> And it was the first time that I had actually held on for the the full twelve kilometer wash leads, and I was high fiving myself, going, "That's sweet!" Like I was still making the senior team, but it makes you hard and appreciate those efforts. Like if things are given to you on a silver platter or things are easy, then you probably don't really quite give it the the satisfaction or to give it the accolade that it needs, I guess. Yeah, it's like the respect that it deserves in a way as well. Yeah. Because as you say, like you went over to that, that junior world and you, and you did it, but you were like, mm, like, is it really that big of a deal? Like I didn't really probably focus hard on it. But now you're going into this training environment where you do have world champions, you have Olympic gold medalists, you have yeah. all these like caliber of athletes. You're like, well, I can actually keep up with these guys. If I can keep up with these guys, I can keep up with those guys who are winning the, like the, the, the events at the yeah. World Cup, the World Championships. So when did you win your first uh, world championship event? Like outside of the juniors, outside of juniors, I didn't uh, win my first worlds until two thousand and ten. Yeah, so I was, uh, I was getting to Olymp- that. I'd won I the know, Olympics, but I hadn't won worlds. <laughs> yeah, so that was quite interesting too, because I was reading through your results before this. Like your results basically start in two thousand eight. So you come out of the Athens trials, you don't make the team, uh, but you're in the senior team as it is. Then yeah. you go into this next four-year cycle and it's like you basically had to probably fully commit to this. You're competing against the best of the best every day at yeah. training. 
when do you start to beat those guys? Like when do you start going like two, is it 2008, uh, 2006? Is it when you start no, to it was, it was 2005 when I, so I'd watched Athens TV, I'd watched Athens on TV and there was, and I, I still remember there was people at the Athens Olympics that I knew that I could beat. Like I'd beaten them the year before at world cups or world champs from other countries. And they were making finals at the Olympic games. And I'd, I was kind of kicking myself at that time and yeah, I shouldn't really kick myself because the guys that beat me also got medals at the Olympic Games. So, but they, I remember watching and just going, all right, I really need to not stop surf life saving, but stop having that as my priority. Because up until Athens, I was still thinking that I was an Ironman. <laughs> so, yeah. so, um, and yeah, 2005 came along, put my head down and just trained. Um, 2006 came along and I'd won the K1 at, at Nationals. And it was my first chance at racing K1 un- uninterrupted and uh, at World Cups and World Championships. And at 2006 Worlds, I ended up getting fifth. Like I pulled the, pulled the race out of my ass. I don't know how that happened, but ended up getting fifth. And the I just, Eric Larson got fourth. You know, the guy had won in Athens. Um, I think Adam was third, also won in Athens. Marcus Oskarsson got one in Athens in K2 and he'd won the K1. So all of a sudden I was in this race where, oh, he's Olympic gold medalist, Olympic gold medalist, Olympic gold medalist, Olympic silver medalist. And all of a sudden I was surrounded by these guys and knocking some of them out of the final. And I went, oh, okay, I'm, I'm on the money here. And then, 2007 came along and it was also Olympic qualifying year. So a lot of people don't realise that Australia doesn't get an automatic start at the Olympic Games. We have to race the year before at World Championships. And in the K1, you have to get top eight at the World Championships. Uh, In K2, you've got to get top six. And K4, it was top six or top eight um, to actually earn an automatic spot. Or not yourself, but earn the country an automatic spot at the Olympic Games. So... 2007 was probably my biggest pressure year in that one, I wanted to prove that to myself, not to anyone else. I wanted to prove to myself that um, fifth wasn't a fluke. It wasn't a fluke. I I needed to, I know I can race that fast. I know I can do it. And I'd turned up and also from senior management in the team, they were kind of also looking to us and going, you have to qualify. Yeah, they will be saying that to everyone and then turn around and just stare at me and I'm like, oh, okay. Um, and so there was that added pressure in 07 to do that. And I remember racing the final. I'd come out of the semi. I'd qualified fastest into the race. And I'm thinking to myself, this can't be happening. Like, you know, I'm looking around at the guys around me and just going, this is... And it, it's not just competitors around you. It's idols. You know, you're racing against your idols, the people that you look up to for so long and I still do and I ended up getting fourth so I'd got fifth in 06 fourth in 07 and then probably and then coming into 08 and still to this day is probably one of the hardest races that I've ever done was at the Olympic trials so I'd done all the races I'd done everything leading up to it I'd qualified the spot um you know, I'd been, I'd won a couple of World Cup medals along the way, not not big ones, but just I'd never actually won a World Cup yet. And then coming into Beijing Olympic trials, 
when all of a sudden I had this confidence in me that, yeah, I'm mixing it with the best. That was probably the biggest race to this day that I've still ever done. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a, and there's a few things, I guess that you can unpack there a little bit for us. Um, dealing with the pressure of that type of situation, because you do have the, basically the whole hopes of Australia resting on your shoulder and you're not even at the Olympic games yet. You're like, you've just got to qualify the yeah. boat and it's your responsibility. But then you have to go back to the Olympic trials and race against all your teammates essentially yep. to get the spot. So it's like you, you're sort of dealing with two types of pressure. You're like, if I qualify this boat, it doesn't mean I'm racing at the Olympics. It just nah. means Australia gets the race at the Olympics. How do you deal with something like that? Like it's, it's a real, must be really hard on the mindset. At, at the time I was still young and, and, to, to me, that, that race, that was probably why it was one of the hardest races because I was dealing with that pressure and I probably didn't deal with it as good as what you know, I would now. I was a lot more relaxed at Beijing Olympics going into the final than what I was leading into the final of the K1000 at Aussies. Even though you know, every day I was in training or whatever, we're racing most of the guys there. But there was one guy that hadn't raced in, in the lead up to it. He raced in... Uh, K2 in 07 but it was Clint Robinson yeah, so the guy was like the, <laughs> the god of paddling at the time yeah. um, and he did, he'd beaten me in not everything, he'd beaten me um, in the newspaper for example like he, the, all the journalists loved him because he was Olympic gold medalist. He'd got a silver in Athens. Yeah, he was Clint Robinson. He was going for a, his fourth Olympic Games, fifth Olympic Games. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so everyone loved Clint. And in the newspaper would say, oh, you know, he's, he wants to, he's going to take this event. He's going to do that. Um, me and Clint actually paddled K2 together in uh, 07, even the start of 08, um, until he turned around and said, all right, that he wants to take the, he wants to do K2000 and, and race the K1500. And I said, well, I want to take the 1000. He goes, well, you can't do both. I was like, uh, okay, well, I've just come off a fifth and a fourth at World, so I kind of still want to do that event. Sorry, mate. And that's where we split up a bit. But um, going into that race in 08, it was all the pressure. It was clean. He hadn't raced yet, hadn't raced in all the things leading up. Everyone knew he was going fast. Um, it, there was little bits of weed in the course at Penrith at the time. Uh, the final came along. Well, leading into the final, I remember just sitting in a room uh, with Jimmy Owens, my coach, and yeah, I was frantic. Like I was almost not like tears in my eyes type thing, but so many emotions are going through your head that you know, everything relied on one race. <laughs> yeah. Even though we'd already done a dozen races to get to where I was. It didn't matter. It all came down to this one race. And I got turned up to the final and everyone actually just sat on the side of the bank until they cleaned the course a little bit more because they were still weird. <laughs> so that was kind of cool. I think that maybe relaxed us a little bit that, eh, no worries, there's a bit of a surf coming where it's kicking back sitting on the side of the bank. And then uh, we jumped in, jumped in and raced. I still remember the how the race went. It was... Tate Smith had went out so ridiculously fast, <laughs> like no one had expected it, no one at all. He hadn't done it in a semi, hadn't done it in any race leading into it. He legitimately had like five boat lengths on me going into the 500 meter mark. <laughs> yeah, he had wow. like three. He had like three boat lengths on Clint. Um, 
So I was probably about two boat lengths behind where Clint was. And Tatey, I kind of knew that he'd you know, fall back a little bit. I didn't know whether we could reel in five boat lengths, but I knew that would be, he'd fall off a little bit because he went out so fast. And then it came down to the 500. After the 500, Tatey started to slow down. Clint was starting to accelerate. I knew that I had to go with it. And it got to just above, or just under the 250 meter mark, so about 230 meters, and I had to go. I didn't have a choice. Like it was almost like a a flick of a switch type thing. And I turned on the turned on the power, and turned on the speed, and it wasn't until like the last 30 meters that I'd actually passed Clint, and I got him by 0.3 of a second in that race, and it was like. Yeah, that was tough. Like that was gnarly. We went like three twenty-seven. Um, Clint after the race turned around and said, "Oh, I just did my PB." <laughs> I was like, "When he turned around and said that, and he also he was congratulating me and going, good race, mate.' Everything that you know in the papers, everything that went into it before, all of a sudden changed. I went, thought to myself, "Yeah, that guy." Yeah, he just got second. Essentially, he just lost the K1 spot at the Olympics, the spot that he's won Olympic gold in before. Like, so he kind of expected it to be his. And he's turned around and congratulated me and high-fived me like as if yeah, he'd just won. I went, mm, that's the type of guy that, I, that I'd like to be. One of those guys that win, lose, or draw. He's the guy that I want to yeah, congratulate everyone no matter what. And um, yeah, that was, that was pretty special winning that race. The yeah. next day was the um, the 500 meter race, and in, in all honesty, I didn't really care so much about the 500. I got the event that I wanted, and that was it. 500 meter event came along, and the same thing. I was probably in about fourth, third, fourth with about 100 meters to go, and turned it on, and then came through for the win in that. And then yeah, that's how we got our Olympic spot, Olympic ticket, really. <laughs> Yeah, I guess it was just your time to really make it all happen. And as you're talking about like being in your hotel room, like feeling like really anxious and nervous and like you're dealing with all this like external pressure as well, because all of a sudden, like like once every four years, like hiking gets a hell of a lot of spotlight. Like it becomes the, the biggest deal and everyone's really excited. But I, I wasn't there to read all these newspaper articles, but I'm sure there's a lot of mind games getting played outside of the water and you had to sort yeah. of try and partition, partition yourself away from that to try and make sure that you can perform on the day when it counted and you, and you were able to do that to like a four-time Olympian Olympian gold medalist. So yeah. I guess, it, I guess it was just, it was your time. And, and it comes down to that moment where you've got to allow yourself to win. You've got to allow yourself to get out there and take it because no one's going to give anything to you. And you mentioned it earlier as well in the interview and you're saying how if it's, it comes easy to you, you don't respect it as much, but when you get across the finish line and you've killed yourself to get there, it's just that extra um, exuberant feeling. Yeah. Well, it's, pro it's probably why I still to this day, I still think it was one of the hardest races I've done. You know, taking down a guy that had already been to four Olympic Games and an Olympic gold medalist already, you know, I knew that he wasn't going to just roll over and give me the spot. Yeah. I had to go. <laughs> I didn't have a choice. I had to go. And for that reason, I, I have even more respect for him yeah. know, in that regard. You know, he's, Clint's a little bit of a different character. Um, but in, in so many ways, you kind of go, he's, he had some talent. He's something special. Oh, absolutely. Like the amount of Australian surfski medals yeah. that, gold medals that he won over 15 years. You can't do that if you're not you a very, very special athlete. So, yeah, exactly. And, 
So yeah, it's, it would have just been an incredible moment, I guess, to get up there and take that. But that wasn't that was only a, half the job, I guess. Like you, you go there, you qualify the boat in uh, 2007, and you have to do the Australian trials in 2008. And these like a world championship or like basically stepping stones to winning this gold medal. Then you have to actually prepare for the Olympic Games. Now you get through those moments, and you, I guess, it's not only excitement and you're really happy with your performance but it's also kind of like relief so you get through that next stage and do you feel that relief feeling because i speak to a lot of people on this podcast and when they win things it's kind of like oh thank god yeah but was it like that for you I, it was when when you finally get that olympic ticket when you finally get that tick that i'm going to the olympics yeah it's that it's over and then you go no it's not it's actually just started <laughs> and then yeah. it's it's literally just a brief moment where you kind of go all right that part of the job's done. It's a stepping stone to what you know, the, the bigger race at the end of the year. Um, there is that small moment of relief that everything could have gone, everything could have gone pear-shaped in one race. You know, if I was sick or if I had a sniffle or I got some weed on the rudder or, you know, some, it all came down to that one race and the fact that I just got that over and done with. It took a, a fair bit of weight off the shoulders and then I could concentrate on the real task at hand. And that mental toughness that you're talking about there, how did you develop that? Like, obviously you did a lot from racing, you developed from your, like your support, your team and everybody around you from your coach or like the Institute, um, other athletes probably maybe who maybe weren't in the same position as you to, to participate, but they were there sort of like, as like yeah. kind of like journeyman for you or whatever it is. How did you create that sort of mental toughness to go right? This is my race. This is my time. I have to perform it. And I have to get past Clint this last 30 meters of this race. And then you don't know if you're going to win the Olympics or not, but you've just had to get to that spot. Like, is there any techniques that you use um, to get yourself into that position or is it just you relied on a really good safety net around you? I think later on in my career, I've actually learned more now about what I'd done previously. Like there was stuff there that I'd do like with my breathing and so forth, leading into a race. And I was never a guy to listen to heavy metal music or anything like that. I was always really quite calm. Like I like to relax before a race. And later on in my career, I've learned why I've liked that. So there was stuff that I was doing when I was younger. I just didn't realize that I was doing it. Um, the other part too is that when I was training, I always tried to make training tougher than what the race was. Uh, the, the race is only a reflection of the training that you've done. And so if I knew that I'd done the right amount of training and I was fit and I was confident, then the race essentially should be easy. Um, it sounds silly because the race wasn't easy, but it, yeah, I did, the training should be harder. And I think that's where you get that mental toughness and because it's also that cliche that you should lose more than you, than you should win. And I tried to do all my losing in the training, not in my racing. <laughs> Everyone yeah. wants to win the races and racing against those fast guys when I was younger and I was getting beaten in session in, session out. I think that's what made me tough in, in some regards that if I wanted to do well, I had to eventually take these guys down. Um, we tell a lot of the young kids now, you know, they all think that they all want to go to Europe and race and you kind of think, well, how about let's just beat everyone else in Australia first and then let's beat our neighbours, the Kiwis. And then if you can win out of those two countries, then let's go to Europe. Now you don't want to go over there and, and just race for the sake of it and get knocked in a heat or a semi. It's kind of, 
uh, let's let's beat the person in training first or let's beat that one person that's a little bit older or chase them down and there's always a challenge and you set yourself little micro goals in the in the sessions um you just keep breaking stuff down until it becomes easy really yeah and you've got to really be performing at training because you are around the best of the best but you've also got to have that mindset where this isn't where it counts this is it does count for the race but when yeah. it actually counts, this is when I'm going to turn on. Like that guy might be able to beat me now, but when we turn up to race day, he's not going to be anywhere near me. And that's sort of, I guess, the mindset you've got to develop over those training sessions. But um, coming into the 2008 Olympics, you probably got like four months, I guess, to prepare for it. What do you do? Yeah, so we went straight to Europe. So we have Anzac Day here in Australia. And then pretty much the day after Anzac Day, we head over to Europe. And there's always three World Cups or generally three World Cups leading into an Olympic Games. First World Cup, I got over there, and we only arrived like 10 days before, and I heard Eric Larson actually say it in an interview one day, he goes, oh, the Aussies, he goes, they're always, they're always average at the first World Cup. And he goes, but by the last World Cup, he goes, they're on. And I think it's because we've raced in March, we've raced in February, raced in March, we have a couple of weeks off, and then we're you know, essentially gone from summer straight into winter in Europe. Like it takes a little bit of adjusting for us to get used to and used to the racing as well. Um, and at the first World Cup, I remember making finals, but I was just like, you know, back end of the A finals type thing. Um, I was that little bit sick. And the second World Cup um, was in uh, Zagreb in Hungary. And I remember was racing the thousand, made the final, made the final of both, the thousand and the five hundred, but then um, ended up again like midfield, like fifths and sixths type stuff, except for the five hundred where I remember, um, and this taught me a big lesson as well. There was a starter there in the five hundred, and he's gone. You know, that none of them speak good English that well, and the guy's gone. Right, the starts normally start within 10 seconds, go. But he turned around and goes, start within. And I'm sitting on the start gate with the nose in, nose in the cone ready to go. I'm sitting there going, and I've turned around and looked at him. Like, what's going on? Like, is he serious? Yeah. And as soon as I've turned around and looked at him, he said, go. And I've just taken a stroke. But because I turned around, my paddle had slipped sideways yep. a bit and i've fallen straight in the water i could not believe it i was like i'm meant to be racing this event at the olympics in like a couple of months time and i've fallen and here i am swimming around at the end of the course oh, the it's better to swim is, it's better to swim in that race than the olympics <laughs> yeah well the good part is you're 500 meters away from the grandstand and the coaches are just going oh, i can't really see what's happening type thing so until they saw me paddling back down the warm-up like but that race in itself taught me a really good lesson that you know, keep your keep your blinkers on. You know, you be a horse. Keep your blinkers on and focus on what you're doing and not what anyone else is doing, because the race is going to happen no matter what. And whether you're in it or not, it's still going to go ahead no matter what. Yeah. I'm not big enough. I'm not a. I'm not bigger than the race or bigger than the sport. They're not going to hold the race up for me. Yeah. And so that taught me a lesson that keep the eye on the prize, keep my head in my own lane and concentrate on what I'm there to do. Um, so it, 
yeah, it was good. And, you know, it, I had to fall in and go swimming to learn that lesson, but it's also a lesson now that I've still hold on to and I still keep to this day. So as much as it was a failure, it was also a massive win. You know, mistakes are, you know, I'm, I'm just using quotes here at the moment, but mistakes are only mistakes if you don't learn from them. And that was a lesson that I learned from. So it went from a mistake to all of, all of a sudden into a lesson. And then we come around to the, from then we went to the last World Cup. It was in Poznan in Poland. I think I'd got fourth in the thousand um, final. And I remember Fui was getting, got fifth. And in front of me was Tim Brabant, Eric Larson, Adam Van Kuverden. Like it was basically those three were swapping positions on the podium all the time. And I was around that. Me and Fui were swapping fourths and fifths pretty much. And the 500 was the last event on the last day. And I thought, you know what? Throw the race plan out the window. Throw everything out. I'm just going to go as hard and as fast for as long as I possibly can. <laughs> and that's it. Don't think about anything else. Keep my head in the lane and just go for it. And blast one out. And sure enough, I did. I was leading at like 250 metres. And even then, being in front of Adam especially, because he hadn't really lost a 500 metre race at all, um, being in front of those guys is quite daunting at the time. And mm. I was like, all right, keep going, keep going, keep going. Um, Adam passed us, Tim Brabant passed me, and I ended up with third at a World Cup in K1. And I was like, wow, that's pretty stoked. And Tim Brabant and Adam, like, they're all good buddies. Man, Adam had raced a lot and done a lot of training camps leading up, uh, even before Athens when Adam had won. We are all ready good buddies then. And Adam's come up to us. He goes, oh, geez, you went out hard. He goes, I'm glad you did, though, because we went for it. I had to catch up. And I was like, well, yeah, I'm kind of spewing you caught up. But, you know, and it turns out, even though I'd got bronze, I'd gone under the previous world record by like a second, just over a second. Um, so in that race, all three of us went under the previous world record, which is pretty cool at that time. And from then on, from that race, it probably gave me that confidence for the training and, and everything else leading into the Olympics at two months later. Um, the rest of the Australian team came home uh, and they were training in, and they came home and trained in Rockhampton because China was really hot, 32 to 36 degrees every day. I stayed in Europe, me and Adam, thank you. And we ended up following each other around. We trained a little bit in Berlin then we trained a little bit in, and then did most of our training in Solnok in Hungary. Um, and then I went straight from Europe, straight to Beijing and met the guys in Beijing. I think they arrived there about a week earlier than me. Um, I arrived the day before the opening ceremony. And because kayaking's in the second week, uh, me and Adam were still training together. Now the week before the Olympics, which is, which is pretty cool. Uh, we're doing efforts like 300 meter sprints, like 300 meter, just blast one out. Yeah. And even to this day, they're still some of the fastest 300s I've, I'd ever done. Like we'd tape it and everything. Like we'll just, I'm like, yeah, I feel great. And just blast one out. Um, turns out we ended up having like a crowd on the bank watching because we're just, just turning around and just going for it each time, which is, is really cool. 
Yeah. No, it's pretty, I know you've had a good relationship with Adam over the time. And I saw, I guess, the back end of Adam's career when I was down there at the Institute with you guys training. And I know you and Anders had a, a, yeah. a really good training uh, group there that you sort of back each other and you sort of were training each other to become better. And I guess it shows that when you're out there in those races, it's not kind of nice to have your friends out there as well with yeah. you. And you, you know, when you finish, you're like, oh, how good was that? Or you've had these same conversations in your training sessions so many times. But you're also feeling comfortable now at the front of the field, which is probably what you've realized in that last World Cup. You've realized, that, okay, maybe I can sit out here. And yeah. did, you, did you change anything leading into that next game except for training really hard with Adam? Or was it like, did you change your race plan after that performance? No, I didn't really change my race plan. The 1,000-meter race, I, I could always finish. Like yeah. I was, I'd always be like back end of the field at the 700-meter mark, and then I'd just turn, turn it on and I'd come through and see how close I could get for the win or take the win. And so in the thousand, I always tried to go out harder. Never seemed to work too well, but you know, it's again, here's another quote that you, know, you play to your strengths and train your weaknesses. So I yep. think so my strength was in my finish. So I didn't really have to work on that too much. I still had to still have to do it in training, but I had to train my weaknesses, which was the first half of the race. So for the thousand, um, yeah, I really had to work on being in front or in contention at the 500 meter mark. That was always the goal to make sure that I was in contention at the 500 meter mark. Yeah, just making sure that you weren't too far behind where you, the, the infamous or the famous Kenny kick could come in and actually be, be uh, competitive. Otherwise, it's, if you're too far back, it doesn't really work too well. No, it doesn't. It doesn't work. You've just wasted that energy for nothing. <laughs> yeah. So um, going to the Olympic Village for the first time, you go into the Olympic, like just the whole spectacle, I guess. Was that something that was quite hard to sort of contain? Because you're talking about races as well, like the emotions and like trying not to just physically and mentally exhaust yourself before you get to the start line. And you're talking about how you were quite relaxed and you didn't really worry about it too much when you were younger. How did you deal with it when you went to that, that just huge Olympic stage, all the noise, all the media, all the just attention? The Olympic village is really overwhelming. Like it is massive. It, it is essentially, when I say a village, it's a village. Mm. Now you've got a place to eat, you've got a place to wash, you've got a place to, a games area. You've got, you know, it is you know, six, seven high rises all in one with a giant fence around it. Um, mm. Going through security alone is an ordeal. Um, I didn't have any of my Olympic kit because I'd come straight from uniform, um, Europe. And so all of a sudden I've gone from having two bags as it was and a paddle bag to having now four bags and a paddle bag. And you're there trying on some of your kit and some of the sizes don't work and some <laughs> like it. It's, it's a big ordeal. And then I moved into where the rest of the boys were saying, um, and myself and Jacob Clear were sharing a room uh, together, which is which is cool now because we're still still good buddies. And um, yeah, so that's quite gnarly. I only lasted in the village probably about two days, and then I moved out. Yeah. So they were the rest of the team were stoked because the physio moved into my bed. Yeah. That's in physio, and I moved out. And yeah. me and Jimmy. My coach, we shared a room which was about three and a half K ride uh, from the course in Beijing. Uh, it's similar to where the Canadians were staying as well. Um, 
but yeah, we literally went from all this hype and, and everything was going on, which was great to experience. Like it loved me. I loved it because all of a sudden it made the Olympics real for me. Yeah. Instead of just, Oh yeah, I'm going to the Olympics. Now this made the Olympics real. And, um, but it was good to get out of there and to go back and focus on what I was there to do. Like you, you made the Olympics, you're there to do a job. Yeah, and you and you go in there to do the job, and you try and so you basically try and get away from the noise, so just so you can just go back into your zone, go back into what you know, and and you like probably what you've been doing. I guess Zonok was probably your training base through yeah. that period as well, and you sort of have your your structures in place where you know that you can get your comforts and your rides are training every day when you're in Zonok. So the three and a half k ride probably didn't yeah. matter to you, you know, like so it, was it was exactly the same by by a few hundred meters, you know, riding from where I was staying at the village. The best races that you can ever do and and I would tell this to anyone, it's the same thing with food and nutrition, everything leading into, into races is if you keep it exact the same or as close to what you do every day in training, then you're going to perform like you, like you do. Yeah. Um, so going back and riding to the course, I was essentially warming up my legs like I would in training anyway. So I was keeping that consistent routine happening. Um, just because I was at the Olympic Games doesn't mean that you know, I have to do anything different. You have to keep it the same and keep the routine and the consistency. Yeah. And Jimmy's obviously been there from the start, basically, for you. He became your coach in around 2000. Would that be right? Yeah. So Jimmy took, he took me overseas in to Brazil, won our first junior world championships. You know, it's, it's funny. The day that I turned, uh, what was it, like 28 or 27, um, was like the day that you know, the same age as when when Jimmy was when he started coaching me, and I kind yeah. of look at that and go, "Wow, that's yeah, we've been been around together for a while, which yeah, which is good, and we've we've grown together. I've watched his family grow and he and his kids grow up, and now he's watching my kids grow up as well. Um, so it's it's great. We've definitely had some ups, but we've also had plenty of downs as well, where um, I might not necessarily agree with something or he won't agree with what I've done or whatever else. But to me, I look at that and go, it's very, it's a healthy relationship because I'm pushing him to make him better, but he's also pushing me to make me better and not just better on the water, but a better person as well. So yeah, there's, I think it's a very healthy relationship. Yeah, you've got to have those fights and you've got to understand what you're doing. And then you like it, it, the only reason I ever say that people fight is because they care. So that's just part yeah. and parcel of having that close relationship because you are, you're staying in a hotel room in Beijing and you've moved away from the village because you both think that's going to work for you. And now you're going into the racing part of the, the Olympics. Um, what happens in the heat, the semi, and does it all go to plan? I know your phone's ringing right now, but... No, <laughs> sorry, mate. I don't know how to turn it off. It's ringing on your laptop. It's amazing. I know, I did that. Yeah. Uh, we're all good. Um, nah, so you're going into the, the, I guess, the heats of the Olympic Games now, and you've got the semifinals and all that sort of stuff. Does it all go to plan? Like, do you, do you have a good draw? Do you, you feel good? You're not sick? All that type of thing? Uh, to be honest, the most nervous race that I had at the Olympic Games was the heat. Um, and it's, I was nervous only because of... I hadn't raced in two months from the World Cup. I'd gone from, I knew I'd done the training, but it was still putting it all together on the day. Um, And so the heat of the thousand was the most nervous race that I had. And once I got that over and done with, I I had Eric Larson in my heat. 
Uh, and I was next to him for 850 meters of the race type thing. And then he'd come through one, I'll get second. I was like, all right, sweet. Got that over and done with. And I kind of used the mentality like Aussie surf champs used to be. I was still relating a lot of it back to the surf. Um, that you know, if you made it to Sunday at the Aussie surf champs, you're like, you're on. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And the way, the way the program was at the Olympics was heat of the 1,000 on the Monday, heat of the 500 on the Tuesday, semi of the 1,000 on the Wednesday, and it, it went through. So if I'd made it to Saturday or made it to Friday or Saturday, I was like, I'm in the finals. This is it. You know, I'm waiting for the chopper to come over <laughs> during yeah. the ski final, almost blow you off this ski type stuff. And so I kind of used that mentality that um, – once I got through that first race then everything was going to flow and I was going to get into it. And the more races I'd done and the media kind of went, went nuts a little bit on it. I must've quoted somewhere. I'm going, Oh yeah, the more races I do, the better I feel. Um, which was true because the more times I heard that start gun go, the more times I heard the, you know, went up the course, the more times I had eaten the right food that day, eaten the right lunch that day, went down to the course at that time every day. And, and just went through the process. The more times I'd gone through that, the more comfortable I felt doing the Olympic Games. So, Yeah, and obviously your heat goes well. Um, you're feeling comfortable. You've heard the gun. You, you're used to the noise. You're in a really comfortable position, I guess, where you're staying. You're in your routine. Everything's yep. going to plan. Um, go semi-final. Does everything go to plan? Everything goes to plan. I think I was in lane five, and I had Ben Fui, who had won world championships, and I think still, or at the time, I'd got the world record for the 1,000 on one side of me. I had Marcus Oskerson, who'd won Worlds in 06. Um, next to me, I had Sean Rubenstein, like I had, who was another training buddy of mine um, leading up to Beijing. You know, so I was surrounded by these world champions. And I went, all right, this is going to be tough. You know, I, I, have, to, I have to go. I can't stuff it stuff up i always had this confidence that i'd make it through to the final yeah if i didn't stuff up like if i didn't take a bad stroke or if i just if i did my normal race i'll make it <laughs> have that sort of confidence leading into it and i'd come through and i ended up winning my uh winning the semi which is pretty cool um and myself marcus oscarson made it through uh, ben Fui made it through and Sean Rubenstein, unfortunately, got uh, fourth and didn't make it through to the final. Yeah, it must have been hard so, for him, obviously, to deal with. And that's something about the whole Olympic Games concept. Some people go fantastically well and some people, unfortunately, don't get there. So, luckily, yeah. we're on that good side of uh, that coin uh, at this Olympic Games. But So, you're racing two events at this Olympic Games as well? Yeah, so I was racing the 1,000 and the 500. So I was and just, how are you managing that? Well, it was... Every day I had one race. That's all I had to manage out. Um, it, was, it was always nice going into the 500 because you're like, oh, yeah, it's half the distance. And then you go, that's eh, twice as hard. <laughs> yeah. so it, it was good. It gave me more opportunity to, to hear it. Um, and me and Jimmy beforehand in the months leading into it, we planned out the week, how, how it was going to go because we know what the program is going to be. We know when the start time is. We don't know what heat or semi i'm going to be in so you've got like basically a half an hour bracket yeah uh, that you know that you're going to race and we'd plan through to saturday so a thousand finals on a friday but we'd plan through to the saturday because you now we're at the olympics we're not going to stuff around and 
if I can go under a world record and Poznan, we're still on the money here in the 500 as well. So, so what, but, but you say, so, so by the sound of things, you were actually focusing on the thousand. Was the thousand the, the event that you weren't really The thousand wanted to was win? the event that I went there to win. Like, yeah. That's the one that I wanted just because I had better results leading into, into Beijing over the thousand. And I'd always consider myself like a, a little bit more of a, an endurance paddle than what I was sprint. I think I didn't, I just wasn't as strong as the other guys in the 500. Like it, it's funny to get that. There's a few guys that are younger, but I felt that as a male, you don't really feel like you got this man strength, if you want to call it man strength or man power, yeah. until you're 23, 24, 25, like until you're that mid 20s where you actually do feel that little bit stronger. Um, and that's, you need a fair chunk of that in the 500 meter race. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I was never really the sprinter type, but it was uh, it was definitely. I definitely feel stronger now than I probably did back then, and it's just amazing how like you maybe not doing as much work necessarily, but you've got those those years of sort of back to back to back to back training that yeah. really builds you up. So final thousand meter Friday, how's it go? So I went up there. I was a little bit nervous, but not too nervous. We're sitting in the start gate. Um, the, t the camera boat goes past in front of you and all I remember thinking is just like, do I smile? Don't I smile? What are my mates doing? Like, are they taking the piss out of me? Yeah. <laughs> um, one thing that got me through that final and I'd always remembered, and I don't think I really told them too much that I'd always imagined what my mates were doing back home and the party that we'd be having when I got home. Yeah. And it wasn't, yeah, going out and drinking, but it was just hanging out with my surf club buddies again. Yeah. Um, and so I, I just always imagined that and the, and the party and the, and it kind of made me feel good about what I was there to do, um, that I was there representing them and I was representing my family. I was there. Yeah. I was the tip of the sport, tip of the sword in that race type thing for them. And I, the race started and I was last at 250 meters. I was last at the 500 meter mark. I was second last at the 750 meter mark. And then came through, I believe I pulled up into silver place. And then with about 30 meters to go, like literally almost fell in because I was just that buckled. So full of lactate, it wasn't funny. Yep. Normally I try kicking from about 300 meters out. Uh, this time I'd gone from like the 400 meters out. So I was yep. like, I'm done. Um, and ended up with a bronze. And to be honest, I remember finishing that race and being like that little bit disappointed for that brief moment, thinking uh, no one dreams about winning a bronze medal at the Olympic Games. Everyone wants to go there and win the gold. And that was the event that I wanted to win. And then watching my mates that I'd trained with and raced against come over and congratulate me and they were so happy for me to do it made me kind of think, you know what, for the rest of my life, I'm going to be an Olympic medalist and mates were there surrounding us and high-fiving us and, um, yeah, seeing how happy my family is in the grandstand. Like it's, yeah, it was epic. And then you kind of go, yeah, for the rest of my life, I'm going to be an Olympic medalist. Stoked. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It is quite interesting. The whole like Olympic concept in a way, because there are, there's the winner and the winner gets the most amount of attention. They've got, they won that four year cycle. Essentially they go up in the history books and it's, it's incredible. And, but if you don't get first, it's like, okay, so then 
what did like all those years work? And like, but then you've got a third place, which is incredible. But you think about all the other athletes there who've turned up to essentially go there and win the gold medal, like you're talking about, like nobody really goes to the Olympics to come ninth, you know, like it's not really the goal when you're, when you're planning it out, your performance, but you, how did you use that? I guess you've, you've won, you've won in a way you've won to your friends, you've won to your family and you've won to all these amazing people around you, like your athletes and the, and the crowd, because you've got, you've got an Olympic medal, which is incredible. But how did you use that to fire yourself up for the next day? Well, the next day, in some ways, it was that little bit of pressure off the shoulders because I'd already got my Olympic medal. You know, yep. I, as much as a, it's a bronze at the Olympics, making just one making the Olympic team, like this is where I think some people don't quite give it the, the um, time of day. Oh, I've got it. You're playing with my computer. <laughs> I am. I'm, I'm taking over your world. So, yeah. So, oh, yeah. we've got the, uh, the race up in the background. It'd be really cool to actually just, I guess, all play it and we'll walk through, I guess, what you're thinking. Yeah. So, this is the, five, the 500 race that you've got up. Yeah. Because it's in lane eight. So, is yeah. this where you're thinking about the Chugan Surf Club? And all yeah. Go, go back to the start for a second. Or not the start. Just go back a few seconds. See yeah. the while that you got... Yeah, you didn't know what to do. <laughs> I didn't know what to do. What do I do? Do I just like smile? Don't I smile? It's like a... Just don't yeah, fall in. Don't fall in. <laughs> I, no, I was in lane eight and then it was one big last breath before the yeah. race. Um, a lot of people don't see that and don't realise how much it is. And you see Erkosh, Vereske, one last breath before the race, trying to get in amongst, as much oxygen as he can. Um, on the left side, one of my best mates, Anders Gustafsson, and Stepan Janic, who comes out to Australia all the time. He's in lane six. Adam, Ben Fui, Anton Rykov. Uh, okay, so this is a, the version of Adam, Anders, full starting. <laughs> and So this is the 500. So going into the 500, all I knew that is I need to nail my start. I need to get the first couple of strokes. And if I don't, then it's going to be a long race because everyone's going to be so tight. Like I knew it was going to be a tight finish, point nothing of a second. Yeah. And I was spewing because I thought that I'd nailed that start. <laughs> and uh, I thought, all right, geez, I've got to do it again. And they'd call the Anders for the full start. And, and they don't have like the one start rule. They had a two start yeah, rule. Two start rule. So everyone there could have started twice. Yeah. And so oh. at this stage, I was going, yep, stoke. I nailed my start. Nailed it. Nailed it. <laughs> Um, and all I could see is there's a red boy every hundred meters that we yep. go past. And all I knew, I couldn't see anyone on the left side of me. All I could see was, um, Akos, the guy on the right side of me. And I thought if I just stay in front of him, so all I could see was the Hungarian stay in front, stay in front. And it felt like he picked it up every hundred meters, but I think it was just me dying. Um, <laughs> but okay. And I was counting down the hundred meters. So 400 meters to go, 300 meters to go, 200 meters to go. Um, and then all I could see coming up was like the grandstand start at about 300 meter mark. There's the yeah. 250 there. I so, had no so, idea that I was in second whatsoever. And what are you thinking? Like, are you just thinking race plan, race plan, race plan? Are you really worried about the guys around you? Or are you just like, I got to maintain this 110 stroke grade, whatever it is. I, I'm going to kick at this point. I'm waiting for that next red can. Like, what are you thinking at 250? I'm thinking I've got one move in me. I've got the 500, there's one move. Go hard, then go harder. Yeah. And all I can remember thinking coming into that 250 is going halfway. Look, thinking, shit, I'm halfway. And then also stoked, I'm halfway. 
It's like a because, glass half full and half empty when you're at halfway mark. <laughs> and you had and you say you had no idea that you're in second. Um, you're about three quarters of a length behind Adam here. What like did you know that? No idea. So the only person that I could see, honestly, was the Hungarian guy on my right hand side, Akos. So and you don't have twenty twenty on your left? No, no. <laughs> I do, but I think like because I think Anders was that little bit behind us and Stefan was that little bit behind us. I couldn't really see the nose of their boats. Yeah. And coming from that second world cup where I fell in, it was like, all right, keep my head in my lane and do what I'm there to do. Because no matter what, I genuinely know that the race is going to be close. You know, all the world cups and everything leading into that race was, it will come down to point nothing of a second. And I'm bound to either win or lose the thing in the last 60 meters. Yeah. So going into that race, I never thought I'd win. I'd always thought I'd come somewhere. If I got a good start, second or fifth. We're coming into this final sort of 250 here. So I just inside the 200, I was like, all right, got to go. I'm going. Like, I don't have a choice. And then it's not that I'm going. I'm just trying to squeeze. And then you come up to the red boys coming up. And then it was those red boys are 100 meters ago. And all I remember thinking to myself was, it's just there. It's just there. Just get there. Don't do anything silly. Don't do anything stupid. Don't fall in. Literally, I'm thinking, don't fall in because I'd almost did the other day. And, yeah, I'm, strong, and I'm starting to seize up uh, inside those red boys. And I thought, just do the basic stroke, stick it in, pull it out. Don't do anything more. Um, and it wasn't until literally I crossed the line and I tried to kick my boat, except I'm over the line because I knew it was yeah. close, but I'm horrendously bad at it. Yeah, um, I it actually probably slowed me down. <laughs> yeah, I can see that big brace stroke that you're yeah, sort of almost it was, doing. It was that brace stroke was thank goodness I don't need to take any more strokes. That was yeah. like a, if I do one big one, it saves me taking another one. And you're full and, of lactate, I'm sure. And I knew I'd had the Hungarian guy covered, but I didn't know that I had anyone else covered at all until I'd crossed that line. And because and this is like, sort of like this is the scenes of elation. Uh, this was a throw the paddle. I don't know what I'm doing here. Um, I was stoked. Like you just, you kind of go into this trance of what, what just happened. Like you can't really believe it. And, yeah. Uh, what just happened. And see, so like I look at Adam in the footage there, like he was stoked to come silver because after the day before he had, you know, he was up first in silver place in the thousand and ended up coming like seventh or eighth. Yeah. Race. So I know that he was stoked to get a medal, but at the same time, I'm sure through his head, he was going through the same thing going, I had that. Yeah. Yeah. Cause he, he, he was one of the guys who always just went out and just like maintained pace pretty much. Wasn't he? He was consistent. He was yeah. stupidly consistent. And then you got Tim Brabant, who'd won the thousand the day before. And he seemed like he's just, everyone's buckled. It's 500 meters of pain. Yeah. <laughs> so and amazing just, speed dealers on as well yeah everyone's just buckled and then after this you see like they all paddle over to us and they're all just stoked and tim was the first one to come over to us and congratulate us like it was yeah having your idols come over and just be like wow i remember looking up so where i'm looking at now is the family's down in the grandstands like 100 meters away yeah oh, probably 150 meters away and um yeah, they were wrapped. And so seeing these boys come over and it's just like, yeah, wow. 
Yeah, it must have just been an incredible moment. I'm sure you look back at it fondly now. It probably gives you a bit of goosebumps sort of winning that Olympic gold. Yeah, it's yeah, winning it's funny winning a individual gold medal at the Olympic Games, it's kinda of like I really am like this is this is stoked. There was a moment just there where there were three of us were all shaking hands and the the IOC uses that photo as like a the respect photo. Yeah. Which yeah, you kind of, at the time, you don't really think much of it. But when you get older, and I've got three kids now, and I look at those photos, and I kind of go, boys, this is what sport's meant to be about. Yeah, like, it, you want to win. Everyone wants to win. But at the end of the day, this is this is sport. Yeah. Um, and so if you can do both, win and do that, then happy days. <laughs> Absolutely. You got to uh, you got to win with respect and you got to lose with respect and that's something that I think should be ingrained in sport in general and it's great to see you guys doing it there and showing I guess how it's done. Yeah, well that yeah, at the time you don't think much of it. But yeah, that safety boat came over and he's picked up my paddle for me and he's uh he's dropped it over to us but you see in a moment I was like I looked back down at my boat and I was like, yep, don't need that anymore. Don't need my yeah. paddle anymore. And I literally end up jumping in the water, swimming the shore. And still to this day, I've never sat in that boat again or taken a stroke with that paddle. Yeah, wow. Have you still got it? Still got the boat. Yeah. So it's that boat's actually down in a museum in Canberra. <laughs> and then oh, wow. A, okay. And then there's one that's uh, a replica of it at Chugan Surf Club. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's pretty incredible achievement to be able to win Olympic gold medal. And obviously having Adam there in second place um, after doing so much training leading into that Games, it must have been nice to sort of see you first or second. And obviously for you, it would have been nicer to be at the top of that podium. Yeah, it's, you know, been a, it's kind of bittersweet that the 500s are no longer at the Games. Because if you look at the times, it was um, between first and ninth was one and a half seconds. And between yeah. myself and Adams, like half a second. So even then, second to ninth is one second. That is tight. Like that's to me, that's exciting racing. That's, I guess, why we knew that we had to go for it because it was going to be so tight. And then we're coming back from that Olympics. Was what was it like coming home to being Olympic gold medalist? Because you, I know you get an OAM after this. You you become like the I think in the top one hundred of the um, Australian Olympic athletes ever. You have like all these different accolades that come towards you. Was it something like a sense of not only achievement but just sort of something completely different to what you used to? Because well, we had no, we had no idea really with the lead up leading into the games because I wasn't in Australia. I was in Europe, so we didn't do any of the media or anything. And so the moment we won that medal, it just turned into a whirlwind. You know, um, we we got invited to these parties that you just kind of go, wow, I don't know who, like why or how I ended up here. <laughs> um, but then the biggest example which of kind of your mates in the surf club was, you know, I was talking before how you end up with so much baggage. <laughs> when I say baggage, like literally luggage. Yeah. from the Olympic Games. And so we got back. And they, if you win a gold medal, they fly your first class. Um, I got onto the plane and just literally passed out for the entire trip, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, they got me off the plane. I was basically second off the plane. I think Steph Rice was first. And they turned around and said, all right, you're the most successful male athlete at the Olympic Games. And you kind of go, oh, that's a, yeah, that's a, that's a bit much. So I think most successful individual athlete or something. Um, and the Chugan boys, rather 
and Brizzy waiting to um, grab me. Like they sent a courtesy bus up to grab me. There's an esky of a few beers in there. Uh, it was still early in the morning. <laughs> but they had it, they had this banner waiting for me and walking out of the tunnel, like you don't really expect anything. You you just stoked to see your mates. But then yeah. you just walk into literally it was a wall of cameras and you just you get to a point where I can't actually walk anywhere because there's just cameras everywhere. Yeah. And so it was really overwhelming to come home and see that sort of thing. And um they were doing an interview when I was trying to pick up all my luggage and I just grabbed my luggage. And the Jugong, Dave Monaghan, he was there. And I still remember playing his day. I said, oh, Jugong, can you, can you take a bag for me? Can you, whilst I just do this interview, can you just take a bag? He goes, looked at me, started laughing. He goes, mate, the Olympics are over. <laughs> I was like, fair call, fair enough. Yeah. And you know, so there's a bit that you, you know, with mates like that, they, they bring you back to earth pretty fast, which is pretty cool. Yeah, it's good to have those mates who just sort of just treat you, <laughs> treat you normally no matter like what. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, so and it was a bit of a whirlwind after that. Yeah, and I'm sure it was obviously very, very nice to be recognised in that way and sort of having all those accolades and, and those different achievements being given to you, but also having your mates there to, to sort of celebrate with you once you go home. It must have been quite a party uh, for a few weeks after that that event. But um, So you say that the, was the K1500 race last there at the Olympic Games? It was last race at the games, yeah. So it's we raced, and then that night there was nothing on um, except for for me. It was TV and other bits and pieces. I think I went to Heineken House and caught up with some friends, and um, and the missus there, and she literally. I went to have like one, everyone thinks, oh, you're going to get on the piss, you know, go out and drinking. It's literally I had I think I had two beers that entire night because you got your beer. And you're, you're about to take a sip and then somebody else comes up to you and starts talking. And so every time you, you end up just standing there holding a beer, looking like a goose, <laughs> just there holding a beer. And um, yeah, so that was, that was a bit different. But um, yeah, and then the following night was the closing ceremony. So you don't really have much time to party at, at the games for if you're a paddler and racing at the last event. Yeah. You make the most of it though. <laughs> And how was the and how was the closing ceremony? Did you get to lead out the team or anything like that? Because you were a successful male athlete. Nah, they had they'd already announced Steph Rice as the flag bearer um, okay. to come back, uh, which is cool. But one of the best buddies and from the surf club and everything was Kai Hurst. So he was in Beijing Olympics as well, and it's we literally every time we could we just hung out together. Like I watched him swim. He swam in the same course as what I raced in. So the semi, the day that I had my semi-final on in the afternoon, he raced his 10K in the same course that morning. Oh, wow. Um, so it was pretty cool to be there and, and watch that. And uh, it gave it that bit of surf club and yeah, hanging out with your mates still. So now the closing ceremony, I was basically hung out with Kai and another Gold Coaster, Duncan Free. Um, and then things went pear-shaped for the next kind of 12 hours. And then... <laughs> I had to get onto a plane. <laughs> as they do, as they do. Yeah. And so how was it coming down from this, uh, I guess, amazing achievement, results, emotion, excitement, all that sort of stuff, and then you basically get back to reality reasonably quickly, I'm sure. Well, yeah, you have to. The next few months goes flies by pretty fast. And it, I remember it got to a point where I said, oh, I just got to wouldn't mind getting out of the Gold Coast and just turning the, 
turn the phone off for a little bit and just and getting out. And so we ended up going to the snow uh, for a few days. And yep. they ended up bringing my coach and they were uh, ringing him every day, doing radio interviews with, with Jimmy. Yeah. And that was, um, it was a bit of a skit. I think CFM was doing it that, yeah, everyone remembers the athlete, but no one remembers the coach. And so they'll interview Jimmy every day. Yeah. And um, yeah, it was good fun. Like, it, was, it was great fun. But you had to, I always knew that once I'd done that, I had to get back into training and I had to, I didn't just want to go to one Olympic Games after that. I, I got the fever. I got, the, I got hooked. I just wanted to keep going. And how did you get back into training? Did you have like, did you go into 2009 have it off or you got straight back into training and started training for the next cycle? I know, I think you won like the, the world's like the next year after that. So what yeah. was that? And then you had like 10 years of amazing results. So well, you did get, you just um, that start your drive? Yeah, well, the 2009 I went, so I had a few months off and then came back paddling. Um, I had the team again and went to worlds, which was in Canada. So I, I did all my training in Canada leading up to world championships with Adam and yeah. Anders over there, which was great. And I ended up with, a, uh, I think, a bronze and a fourth at world championships that year, uh, which I was still pretty happy about. Like, kind of a little bit disappointed at the same time because you think that you're going to, you won the Olympics, you should win worlds. Yeah. But it's a completely different kettle of fish, that one. Um, so now I basically got straight back into it. Then 2010 came along. Um, I won the, uh, my first world championship gold medal there. So I'd won world championship medals before, but that was my first world championship gold medal yeah. uh, besides juniors and stuff. And then... And that was in the 5,000? That sort of became that in, one of your main events over there? Yeah, that was in the 5,000. And then, um, then final, I'd still... I'd always make finals in the 1,500 type stuff. Uh, 2011 came along and again it was qualifying year yep. uh, for 2012 uh, me and Anders and Adam were training and we were on like we'd, we'd be doing 10 1000s and the four they all had to be four minutes or under and yep. the fourth and eighth one were flat stick standing start flat stick and so in some regard the fifth and the ninth one was always the hardest because you've just gone flat flat out and they're yep. on a seven minute turnaround and you had to paddle back full of lactate and still hold threshold pace. But me and Adam were going like 328s and the fourth and eighth ones during training, which were, I'd be pretty stoked if I was going 328 in the final at World Champs type thing still. Yeah. Um, and we were doing that in training. And then the fin the semi came up and they'd changed it from a three semis to four semi system and the top two would go through. I ended up getting bronze in the semi and missing the final. And so I was, I was pretty gutted. I ended up winning the B final. Um, the, the 5K went average. Me and Adam went out flat stick, stupidly. We went like 333 for the first thousand of the 5K type stuff. Like it was, it was stupid. And then, um, yeah, we... I don't know really what happened. We kind of just wanted to dismiss that year. I didn't really have a good year. 2012 yep. came along, the Olympic trials and Penrith was notorious for weed by this time. Yeah. And we made the final. I wasn't as nervous as what I was in 08. And we just got caught up on so much weed. Like it literally. I, I it, think I was there for this and I remember it because this was the one where, was it Joel spun his paddle or something like that? Yeah, it, in the 200 or. 
Yeah, I remember that was my first ever nationals. I think. Yeah, there was a court case about weed, and it was it just wasn't nice. But I'd still done enough to make the team. Yeah. Um, and they'd put me in the K2 2012 World Cup. So I'd trialed K2 with Jacob Clear, and yep. we really wanted to make that work. Except we just paddled slightly differently. Yeah. Um, our legs and stuff, you know, through our leg drive, and in the end, I ended up paddling with David Smith. Um, turned up to London Olympics, and I knew that I was fit. Like I'd been racing Adam. Basically, I turned into Adam's punching bag. Because Smithy was doing K, uh, David Smith was doing so much K4, and so I was kind of the fifth wheel in some regards. And so I ended up turning into Adam and Anders' punching bag for going into the Olympic Games. Yeah. Um, and we still, like me and Smithy, still trained together. Um, but we turned up to London Olympics, and I remember coming down that race, and we were in like ninth, eighth or ninth through that kind of five, six hundred meter. Period. And then I thought, oh, we're better than this. Tried to t- try to kick through, and then we ended up fourth at the Olympics. So, um, yeah, that was to me, it was pretty disappointing. London Olympics because I'd come from two individual medals, a gold and a bronze, to a fourth place at the Olympics, and it wasn't that. I, you know, my family was still happy for me. Everyone was still, everyone around me, was still really happy for me that we'd yeah. race well, except for myself. And yeah. it was that, and wasn't the everyone else's expectations. It was my own self expectation that I had to deal with. And basically, I got home from London Olympics and just got back into training. And I was just, I was angry <laughs> in some regards. I was just angry at myself for allowing me to get fourth. And I look at it now and just kind of think, what dickhead? <laughs> because fourth at the Olympics is still pretty bloody good. But yeah. it was, that was just what I was thinking at the time. And then I went through 2013, just trained with anger, just won everything, the warm-ups, the warm-downs. You know, any time I could, I just went out there to, to win. And to, I probably lost a lot of friends in 2013. Yeah, I remember, I remember training with you actually through that period. I remember, I remember you getting up me for going on the inside of the course or something. <laughs> and I was like, okay, yeah, I don't care. Let's do it. Yeah, I, was, I was probably like that. I, I admit. I was, I was probably, it probably wasn't that friendly. <laughs> I just wanted to train. I was just out to, out for blood. <laughs> it must have been quite, it must have been quite difficult though, because as you say, you're coming away from the, the Beijing games, you've win two medals, like you're just like on the top of the world, basically. And you've come down and you've not really performed the way that you, that you previously had. It, it mentally, it must have been quite hard to deal with. And even turning up to training and, and then going to the Olympics, it just must have felt like, there was something missing, even though it wasn't necessarily anyone's fault or there might have been guys just going really fast at the time. Like, what do you think really changed between your preparation for the 8 to 12? Like, what, what was the difference? I, not too much, I don't think. Like, I, I really feel that I got underdone by the weed at, at the course in Penrith. Um, just the preparation, I feel like, was actually even better leading into 2012. Um, which that, I think that's what the disappointing part was that I felt like I was on form. Like I was, you know, some of the times that we're doing in training, I was kind of pinching myself going, this is where, this is kind of crazy. We're on here. Mm. Um, but just mentally, maybe we just didn't have, you know, we, we had this expectation. Whereas leading into 08, 
there was no real expectation except to prove to myself that I can do it. Yeah. Whereas leading into 2012, I feel like I had not just my expectation, but I felt like other people expected me to go there and win medals as well. And it probably just didn't sit too well with me. Um, I guess that was probably the only difference between 08 and 12. Yeah. And then, and in the end, I just took it out with anger <laughs> and just trained and trained and trained. And it was, I just had to win everything in 2013. That was, that was the goal. And then I remember going to World Cups and winning medals at World Cups in 500s and thousands, like just different events, 5Ks. Um, we turned up to World Championships, uh, made the final in the thousand again. And I went from like sixth to second, just missed first in the K1-1000 final, world champs. Um, but yeah, I went from like sixth to second in like the last 150 meters yeah. type thing. Um, and I'd got, uh, I'd won the 5,000 there as well. Um, so I'd got a gold and a silver straight up at those world championships. And I think the, the reason behind winning that gold and silver was I had my first son in July. So like three weeks before Worlds. And it was like flicking a switch. And I'm not suggesting that people should go out and have kids for this reason. But the, um, it was all of a sudden that anger turned into, oh, hold on a sec. What am I actually angry about? Yeah. Sport's fun. How, how, how lucky are we to actually even do this sport? Um, Look at me, I'm on the other side of the world. I'm in Europe, like I'm traveling around. I've got maids all over the, over the world. Like I'm lucky to do this. And then having Nick's in my first son, it was like, ah, this is what life's really about. And all of a sudden that responsibility changed and I, that sport became fun again. I wasn't angry anymore. I was, I was having fun. I was ha hanging out with my mates again, which was, which was great. And that, from 2013 through to 2017 were probably my most successful years of my career that I'd ever had, even though we'd had a couple of Olympic medals already. That was probably my most successful years. Yeah, it, it is interesting hearing the way that you talk about your mindset. It sounds like going into like the, the eight games, you were relaxed, you were having fun. You didn't really have any expectation except for the expectation you put on yourself. Whereas going into 2012, you had more expectation. Things may or may not have gone your way. There was external circumstances as well that probably didn't allow you to perform the way you wanted to do. And then coming into that next four-year cycle, it obviously was just firing you up. And that's where you saw a lot of good results. And then, and then having obviously Nixon and, and just seeing uh, having a new lease on life and seeing that, I guess, because sometimes I guess when you're doing sport, it, it just becomes the be all and end all. It's just like, this is how I value my, we so deep pit this how I value myself. Yeah. This is what my purpose is. Like I'm a paddler, that's all my purpose is. But then you have, yeah. oh, and you're like, well, hang on. Like maybe there is more to life than just being a racer. And you probably realize that, which allowed you to go back to where you were in 2007, 2008, where you were more relaxed and yeah. just go, okay, let's go out there and have fun again. I, I wasn't allowed to be a paddler anymore. I was, all of a sudden I turned into a full-time dad, part-time paddler. Whereas before that, I, I looked at myself going full-time paddler. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, I turned into full-time dad, part-time paddler. And I started and, having fun. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's what, I guess that's what you see in a lot of athletes. Like the athletes that do the best are usually the ones that have got the smiles on their faces before the races. Like there are some guys who are supernatural and can be super determined and focused and have all that anger and stuff and still perform well. But sometimes that you use all that emotional anger and you, and you don't race as well because you're just so 
worked up. Like you've just used like that, that final yeah. kick of your race just before the race because you, you've worked yourself up so much. Yeah. Well, I felt like I'd got back to where I was. I got back yeah. to where you know, having fun with my mates, which was essentially why I started the sport in, in the beginning anyway. <laughs> yeah. And then you look at your results list here, I've got over here on the sideline and it's just, you go from like a few results here and there, here and there. And then like 2013, bang, there's tons of results. 2014, there's heaps more results again. And then just sort of builds up right into the, I guess the next Olympic games in Rio and you, and you link up with Lockie Tame and you, how did that all come about? Like you've had an amazing few years. Like I think you've won the, the K1 5,000 at every world championships. You've got medals in the, in the K1s and K2s at all the, the world cups and world championship levels. Yeah. If one, you win the, you win the K2 500, um, the 2015 world championships with Lockie, like there's all this just amazing, like that four year cycle just must've been incredible. Yeah. Going into 2016, uh, one of the world cups, I hadn't, I didn't realize whatsoever at all, but they'd turn around the ICF turn around and said, all right, you've got like 50 something international wins. And I was like, okay, that's pretty cool. I don't know where, like how, how this is all ended up. Yeah, like 15 more than anybody else or yeah, something like that. 15 more than anyone else in the world. And I kind of looked around at, at some of the guys I was paddling against. I went, I don't know whether that's right, but, and they go, no, no, that's right, and and showed us. I was like, like I was, I was pretty stoked. But the whole paddling with Lockie came about by um, in 2014. Uh, me and Murray Stewart ended up going to a race off in at one of the World Cups in Hungary, and I think it was the first time that Australia's had two paddlers on the podium at a World Cup ever. Uh, I think we both, I think Max Hoff ended up winning, and we got second and third, and he got me by point nothing of a second again but at the same time he got me so uh six weeks out from worlds or seven weeks out from worlds they said all right well you got k2 now what do you do and Lockie at the time i think he was making c finals in 200s and maybe dipping into a b final every once in a while and and we'd paddled k2 before a couple of times and we're good mates then and like it it just made sense to me that, all right, I'll go paddle with Lockie. Here, here we go. <laughs> let's, let's turn him from that 200-meter paddle. Let's, let's extend him out to 1,000 meters. And I think at the time, he, he thought, oh, yeah, this is cool. And then he started training and probably thought to himself, oh, this isn't cool. And then, but at the same time, it, it worked out well because I think we both complemented each other. Like, he had, uh, he had a good start on him, a really good start. And when I had him in the boat with me, I felt like my starts were better for that. Yeah. Which meant that come world championships in 2014, like we were, we were out. Like we were gone in the first 250 meters. And my endurance would then hold through and the kick at the end. Um, yeah, Lockie was always a racer. Like he wouldn't give up in, in the race. And so that was one thing I could always count on him for was just to, uh, no matter how tired or how buckled he was, he was just going to hang in there. And just, I don't, at the same time, he was sitting behind me, so I couldn't really see what he was doing. But just, yeah, he, he would just hang in there. And I remember after, in 2014, after the heat, because we didn't really know what we were doing. We hadn't raced in K2 internationally before. And we'd won the heat. And the coaches come up, and they go, do you know what you just did? And they're like, no, I don't know, 250. 
oh, 315, 316, something like we we had no idea what whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And they go, You've just gone a three oh eight, which would, would put you in like the top ten times of the world ever type yeah. stuff in the heat. I'm going, Oh, shit, that's pretty that's pretty cool. You <laughs> know, that's and then going into world champ final, um, like I was felt pretty good. I'm not sure about Lockie, but I think he was a little bit nervous at the same time. Like you, you're both nervous, but um, and we ended up getting second. And Boothie, you were on that team over in Moscow. It was a bit of a um, bit of a different place, Moscow. It, it was. <laughs> yeah, jeez, <laughs> what a place to go for a battle. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was cool. Moscow was a really nice place to paddle in terms of the the course setup. Just yeah, but everything not staying, out, not staying outside the third ring road probably wasn't the most exciting <laughs> no, thing. No. Across the road from the power plant or wherever we were, it was um, yeah, quite an interesting place. But it was really cool to obviously see you guys perform at that world stage. I've never done a, I've never even done a World Cup or anything like that. I got called in at the last minute, and it was just nice to see obviously everybody performing at the that elite level at in sprint kayaking because I just would have never got that opportunity otherwise. But yeah, to see you guys get second and just see how much it means to all you guys. And, and obviously that everybody, like everybody around as well, like we're all sitting in the shed and we're sleeping under the boats and yeah. there's like obviously different people racing at different times. You've got the coaches, the sports staff and the different things that go into actually creating those medals. It sort of gave me a, a lot of appreciation for, I guess what you did in 2008 and what many guys have done with the Australian teams over that time. But coming out of 2014, you obviously start to realize that maybe you and Lockie can be an Olympic um, threat, I guess, coming forward into 2016. Yeah. Well, straight after 2014, it was a bit of a, not a, it was a semi kind of shock that we back there. Cause I'd, I'd won the 5k again and we got silver in that. And then all of a sudden 2015 was long and it's Olympic qualifying year again. Like mm-hmm. everyone thinks, oh yeah, you're four years apart. You know, in the Olympics, you got four years. And you're like, well, actually, no, it comes around pretty fast, pretty yeah. fast. So, all of a sudden, the pressure was on men lucky to to um, qualify the boat because the K4 at the time in 2014 didn't make the final. 2015, they went through like a big rebuilding stage of the K4. Um, men lucky in some regards were the only consistent ones there there were in in that regard um i think besides like two races where we had just we might as well not have entered i think our worst result in any heat semi or final was second in the k2 um i think our worst result was rio when we got bronze yeah that's that's kind of got to a point where yeah that's that was the expectation that we had of ourselves is to be in the front um but it, it was good. 2015 came along. We won a bunch of World Cup medals. I think at this stage, I was, I think I'd, I was up around that 10 or 12 K1 5,000 meter victories in a row. Yeah. I um, And then you're podium good. at everything as well at, the, at that point as well. Like 2015, you're like meddling in K4 200, K2 200, K2 1000, K1 500, K2 500. Like there's just all these, and you were very all around, I guess, in 2015. You were just being able to be able to be strong in everything. Yeah, well, I, I literally raised everything 200, 500,000, 5K. Um, yeah, it was good. But it was the team around us that also allowed me to do that. Mm. Um, you know, as much as, you know, with Lockie even, 
K2 200, winning medals at World Cups in K2 200. I couldn't have done that without him. Yeah, yeah. At the same time, he couldn't have done the 1,000 without me. Like, it's yeah. kind of part and parcel. So, you do rely on your teammates a lot and you do, you know, some days in training, it does get very heated. And me and Lockie have had our very heated conversations before. But again, it's still, we both want it so bad um, that, yeah, it gets to that point, which is, which is great and it's healthy as long as it stays on the water. Now, yeah. You're allowed to have those types of conversations, but you've got to keep them on the water. And then when you get off, you've got to remember that you're still mates again. Yeah. Um, but then leading into yeah, 2015 Worlds, we'd won the K2 500-meter race, won the 5K again. The Worlds in Milan in 2015 was pretty funny because there was like this big, long barge in the middle of the course, like big, long um, pontoon in the middle of the course. And the yeah. 5K is always the last event, pretty much. And everyone else had been finished for about four hours. So they just, everyone's all, in the team's always pissed and angry at me because I'm making the whole team wait for me yeah. to race the 5K. And so they're out, they all paddled out to this pontoon and they had a few lemonades and um, we were paddling around. And each time we'd passed them, we could just hear the, not, not the abuse, the, the heckling. Yeah. going on from the sideline and it got to a point where I just started pissing myself laughing yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it was funny and then um, yeah, 2016 well that got done 2015 got done and we didn't really stop training after 2015 Worlds we kind of had a few weeks off then got straight back into it because we were on a roll and we didn't want to lose that momentum and yeah, um, oh, here we go I think my phone's going to call again Fantastic. Sorry, no, we're back on. <laughs> nah, it's all good. <laughs> the, you're, pop, um, you're a popular man. <laughs> and um, yeah, so we didn't do much training. And at the time, K4 was a selection event. And so we turned up, there was myself, Lockie, Murray and Jake Clear at the time in K4. And we turned up the Nationals at the Olympic selection. It was the first event in 2016 Olympic trials. And it was like 9am in the morning, straight final. We'd come through, won that K4, and I was like, bang, you're in the team. And I was like, that's pretty cool that now we can race the rest of nationals and it doesn't matter how it's going to go. It was, um, yeah, it was pretty cool. There was, we always kind of expected to make 2016 Olympic team with the results and everything leading into it. I didn't really think that, oh, I'm not going to make the team. So it was yeah. good to be able to train all the way through to, to Rio and not have that worry. Um, yeah, that was, that's pretty cool feeling to have. And World Cups at Re uh, leading into Rio year, it was good. Still again, seconds or first in the K2, still doing the 500 and winning World Cups or 5K winning them. And we did this big training block in Portugal straight after the World Cups. And we we're there for like three weeks. And I got into this mind frame where the only thing I had to do was make sure that I was recovered for the next session. And we didn't pretty much every session was four minute pace or under. Uh, we got to, we were punching out. We did like a couple of 200 K weeks um, yeah. in the kayaks in flat water. It got to a Friday afternoon one time and we were like, hey, what are we going to do now? Oh, sweet. We'll do another. It was like one of the shortest sessions we did, but we we're like, all right, let's have a crack at the 15 K in an hour on a Friday afternoon. And um, yeah, so we had a crack at, we, we 
did that. Um, we got it. I, I got it. The 15k yeah. in an hour, which I was stoked. We got like 15.16 k's in an hour, just non-stop, just go. Yeah. Um, and so we knew that will fit. Our base yeah. fitness was on. Our I remember doing those 15k sessions. I did a really good one with Jacob Clear one time actually, and I can't remember what time we did, but I don't think it was quick as that. Uh, well, I was, I was I was stoked, and um, yeah, so we knew we will fit. And we went into Rio just because uh, Rio was a bit different place. We had to make sure that everything was on point in terms of our nutrition. We weren't allowed to get sick. Um, yeah. We didn't go to the opening ceremony. We didn't go into Rio until a few days before we raced uh, just because we didn't want to train on the course. Uh, we didn't want to train in that water. We didn't want to risk any, any more than what we had to. Yeah. So it was very calculated and, a lot of people don't realize that the staff that you have there, the support stuff that you have there, the amount of planning that goes into an Olympic games is phenomenal. Like what are we going to eat? What are, where are we going to go? What, how's our transport and everything's locked down. And sure enough at Olympic games, like everything changes. <laughs> now you, yeah. you get there and something's not there or, but they've always got a plan around it. And I think that's where we rely on our support staff so much. Um, they're very much part of the journey as much as you are, even though you're the one actually physically coming down the course, they're the ones that are there making sure that you're able to get to the course to start with. Yeah. And making sure you have the best opportunity to perform and making sure that there's no, if anything goes wrong, they've got it covered and you don't have to worry about it because every sort of stress that you have takes that little bit more energy out of you and you may or may not be able to perform as well as you can. So coming into that, uh, that, that K2 thousand meter race with Lockie, what was that? Was, did everything go to plan otherwise once you got to the, the village we, or where you were we staying? Did the, we did the heat of the thousand final, the K2 thousand final and it was, oh, sorry, K2 thousand heat. And we'd ended up, we were winning the thing by a mile. The, the Serbian crew were in the lane next to us. Whether they were on wash or not, we don't know, but they were back a fair bit. And they got to the last 300 metres to go. And we still did, man, Lockie still did a very decent time, but then they just burned past us. And they yeah. kind of caught us off guard a little bit. And it was like, oh, it didn't happen. And then we didn't really have time to respond. Um, so I think they may have, been taken a little bit easier during most of the race <laughs> and then which then put us into a semi-final later that day yeah if you won the heat you're going to go straight to the final uh, okay yes and in some regards i actually think it was better to do the semi because it was Lockie's first olympic games and um it just gave us another even though we'd done a dozen races before it gave us another opportunity to go through our warm-up get up to the start line hear the starting gun go it just gave us more opportunity to run through the process. Um, and then the next day was the final. And in some times we were a little bit nervous because there was a lot of guys in the thousand meter final in the K1 that got caught up in leaves and weed in the yeah. course. And I don't really have a good relationship with any of that. <laughs> um, yeah. It's burnt me in the past, but, and we saw a few of the top guys that I would have put money on to win medals to get taken out of the, of the thousand meter final because of weed and leaves and, and that. So we were a little bit nervous in that regard, but at the same time we were, we had to put that aside and just concentrate on what we were doing and, and whether it happened or not, we, we couldn't do it. We control the controllables. 
That's it. Um, and then went into the final. We had a good start. Uh, the the Germans were next to us. We were there. Uh, the Serbians were back. We didn't even see them again. Um, one or two people might say they may have had an easier race, but at the same time, it's the Olympic final. You know, it doesn't. Everything's within the rules. They start in the middle of the lane. You know, it doesn't. So what well, was that? Was there talk of them being on wash? Was there? Is that is that what you're getting yeah, at? There was there was talk of that, but at the same time, they stayed within the rules. Otherwise, they would have got DQ'd. So yeah, yeah, they they raced the race, which yeah. is, at Olympic Games they you have to do. And the Germans, who ended up being really quite good mates of ours, uh, well, we joked around with a lot. We'd steal their boat, we'd go paddling with them, you know, the whole lot. Yeah. But they kicked at like 600 meter marks, so 400 meters to go, and they kicked like there was no tomorrow. And in mine and Lockie's race, that was probably the slowest point of our race as yeah. well, right on the 600 meter mark. And so they knew what we were going to what we were going to do and they just counted on all right we're going to kick at our weakest point and they went and then tried to hold on and we tried to kick a little bit later or, or go like we normally would and you know, we went up bronze the serbs yeah. went past um well the serbs were next to us and then went past and yeah so, yeah, we held yeah on so bronze, so so, do you look at that race fondly, and, and, and like, do you see that as a as a, a, a missed opportunity, or was it still a really good achievement? I don't see that as a missed opportunity. I, I think the Germans, like, as much as it pains me to say, I think the Germans deserve to win. Yeah. Because they had the race, and they were fit, and they were strong, and they were they were on. Like, they had a really, they had a good race. I think maybe we probably deserve to get at least silver. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, we're lucky to. Not lucky to come out with a medal, but we we worked hard and we come home with something to show. Yeah. Uh, after that race, you know, the most special part for me was I went into that final having uh, two kids at this stage in the grandstand, and so for me it was it was different. It was I could stand there on the podium and have my kids there and show them, yeah, you know, the. Now, we can take videos and photos and, and everything of me standing there on the on the podium and I can turn around in 10 years' time and go, hey, look, your dad used to be cool. Yeah. And so, yeah. yeah, it was one of those, for me, it was a very different Olympic Games experience because I wanted to, to show my kids and show what, not what I could do or how good I was at the time. I, I just wanted to show them the Olympic Games experience and what and what it's like to have mates and, and people like this and race with respect and, and all the rest of that cool stuff, I guess. And so, yeah, at that time I was pretty happy. And once we finished that thousand K2000 final, Lockie was done for his Olympic games. That was him. Yeah. I had to get, I had to get off after the, after the podium, get dressed back in my paddling gear and go for a, a warm down. The other yeah. three guys in the K4 that I was paddling with, they were there waiting for me after the, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, I had to had the podium, then I had to go to drug testing and they're hanging around for hours because they wanted to watch me race, which is great, you know, that your mates are there supporting you. But also they're getting ready for their Olympic final or their Olympic race the very next day. So you know, in some regards, you know, I had great mates that would hang around and wait for me to jump into the K4 and just go through that process. And because I was sitting in the front, 
of that K4. It was a bit hard for them to just throw anyone else in or, or get the training done. They had to wait for me. Yeah. Yeah, it must have been obviously a special situation to be jumping out of a, a podium spot and then jumping back in the K4. And how did you end up going in that K4? The K4, we ended up getting fourth as well. Oh. So <laughs> yeah, my worst the fourth result, is obviously your favourite position. It makes you angry. <laughs> my, uh, my worst results at Olympic Games so far is fourth. <laughs> yeah. So I look at that and go, all right, that's not too bad. But at the time... Yeah, I think Riley had his birthday like a day before and he was went from like 19 to 20 years old. So he was out of his teens. And then we had Jordan Wood, uh, yeah, who was only really young at the time as well. And then we had Jacob Clear, you know, one of the old older state guys that we'd punched out the Ks with. And yeah, we we all listened to Jake and what he and what he'd say. Yeah, you know, everyone else had something to say, but when Jake spoke, everyone stopped and listened. So I think he's not a he's not necessarily the loudest guy, but when he talks, everyone listens. And um, it was great leading that, not leading, but being in front of that boat going into those K four race. And as much as fourth really pains me because the conditions sure. of the day of the final again was this howling headwind. And by no mind, different to when you were eighteen years old over there racing, hey. Yeah, except we were racing men. <laughs> it was, I felt like we were little boys in a big boys race because we were the smallest crew there by a mile. We were the, we were the lightest crew by a mile and it was the biggest headwind there was. And it, it just happens to be on the day what it was. If there was no wind, tailwind or even a small headwind, I would have put some good money on it that we would have walked away from medal. Um, we'd won a World Cup at Duisburg in the K4 that year, racing all the same guys, um, the whole lot. It was just conditions on that day is probably what hurt us the most. But and at the same time, I look at the journey. It, yeah. It's hard to say that, but you look at the journey and you kind of go, we did some pretty cool, special, amazing things along that way. I know fourth hurts and you got Riley and Woody um, that are continuing on paddling. Yeah, and they're using that fourth place as, as fuel to go into this next Olympics. I'm wanting to win a medal. but So that's great. But you know, the older they get, the probably more they'll go. Uh, fourth is pretty cool. And they'll look back at the journey and, and some of the things that, that they did. And yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. It is. And there's just so many different stages along the way where you're achieving different things and you probably don't realize that you've achieved them until you step back and look back at your career and go, okay, well, that was actually a massive achievement given these factors. Like maybe we didn't win because obviously you're a winner and you want to finish, finish every race in front because that's what you, I guess, strive to achieve each and every time you get on that start line. But there are all these different moments that you're able to um, get where you get these opportunities to, to race with different people and to develop different people as well. Yeah. Like, I guess, paddling with Jordan and um, Riley in that Olympic Games, you would have been teaching those guys so many different things and they've learned and they've, and then you actually go as the same crew, I'm pretty sure, or one up with Murray Stewart next year to win the 2017 World Championship. So there is sort of, yeah. there is a win in there that you sort of have, are able to achieve in those different journeys along the way. Yeah, I'd like to think that I taught him a thing or two, whether it was good or bad. <laughs> um, yeah, hopefully, I hopefully I did. But at the same time, those two guys are competitors as it is because the next, you know, the following few years in K two, those two have done extremely well, making world champ finals, and um, they were racing K two when me and Lockie were racing K two as well at all the World Cups because you're allowed two entries. But yeah, those guys have been together for a long time and. And they've got many more years ahead of them, that's for sure. 
yeah um hopefully very successful and yep. yeah a year later like you said in 2017 we swapped one guy out because jake he's never officially retired so i'm still waiting for him to come back yeah <laughs> but jake, jake just pretty much just didn't turn up the training again <laughs> you know he's he went back to doing his plumbing and and off he went you know it's just the type of guy he is he just works hard and um yeah he just never really turned up again but yeah one the following year we put murray into the boat and it was pretty cool going in that k4 with those guys i think i was up to six world champs at the time and but it happened to be riley's first world championship gold medal woody's world first world championship gold medal and it was murray's first world championship gold medal as well oh wow so, awesome yeah so it was pretty cool to be a part of that that yeah, that that will be ingrained in their memory as that K four, their first world championships. Yeah, it's obviously pretty cool to share with that and then and help those guys towards that. And I guess it's a, it's a, as I say, like it's a team environment as well. Like going back to those Taplin tiles and racing in a team boat, you get that different experience because you are sharing that moment. Um, what is next for you? Like I know that you haven't qualified for the Tokyo Games. Um, are, you, are you are you retired officially or are you still paddling? Like what what's <laughs> next for Ken Wallace? Well, I just. Yeah, I never really officially retired because I don't think I really like that word retired too much. I don't think I'll ever be retired from paddling because I just enjoy it. Like it, it's something that I really enjoy. And it's a passion that I have. But I think I, if you want to call it retirement, I think I'll be retired from professional paddling, if you call it that. Um, yeah. yeah, I think at a time going into these trials, I just, I needed an end date. Um, I've got three kids now three amazing kids with who I wouldn't blame in any way whatsoever. It was hundred percent my choice that I want to spend more time with my kids yeah. and to be successful in your sport and to be really successful at that sort of level, you need to be obsessed with the sport. Whereas my responsibilities and my goals have changed because I was obsessed with my kids and my family. Yeah. My wife. So yeah. And it's, it's unfair for me to, to continue on being selfish and, and leaving the kids at home while I go off to Europe for months on end. And it's too hard with the wife, um, dealing with the three kids by herself. She's done an amazing job as it is. She, you know, she came to Rio with two kids by herself, traveled to Europe with two kids by herself. Like she's just a soldier that she's put up with so much that, you know, it's my time to, to give up because I want to, not because I have to, but because I want to, well, kind of have to as well, but, I want to do it. <laughs> well, you've, you've chosen that path in a way as well. And, that, and that's something that you're really focusing on now. And I'm sure you're yeah. an excellent dad. And, and that's like your new sort of inspiration to get up each and every day and do what you do. And, and I know you're still paddling as well. Like, as you say, like you don't really retire from paddling. It's not something you retire from because you actually enjoy doing it. You love doing it. I know you go down with Jeremy, one of my good friends as well, every morning or most mornings. And I'm sure he gives you a good hard session because he never, he never goes easy. Uh, one, one thing you can count on Jeremy for is a solid, hard, consistent session with 30 seconds rest between efforts. He, he yeah. loves those ones. Yeah, but, there's, um, no, there's no minute rest with Jeremy. No minute rest with Jeremy. <laughs> and if you do, he must be feeling off that day or something. But um, no, I love paddling at the moment. I've had Tom Green and, and Jean turn up, uh, come and paddle in ocean skis at the moment because the Olympics have been postponed for that year. Uh, they're in the ocean ski with us. So their, their base fitness is going to be you know, full on. Um, and tra training down with Jeremy down there with, and a lot of the other guys down there, it, it very much keeps you centered. And 
the one thing that I love about paddling with these guys is there's no expectations. There's no level. There's everyone get, has a bit of banter here and there, but it's all fun and games. You can have an easy session or you can have an, a hard session. You can go as hard or as easy as you want. And no one will ever say a thing because yeah. the people in that group just love paddling and they just turn up and want to paddle. Yeah. No, absolutely. I know I used to go down with those sessions with Jeremy and just sit on his watch the whole session. He's like, that's oh, great. Loved it. I love you sitting on my watch. It was <laughs> yeah. fantastic. I was like, oh, you're a special guy. But yeah, it's great. And are you, are you mentoring these guys now, like Jean and um, Tom? Like they, Tom's like sort of like the best K1 paddler in Australia at the moment. He's, is he is he got like a potential to get a medal at the next Olympic Games? Like who who's coming through, you think, that are going to really perform in 2021 and, and beyond? Uh, well, the team's been selected as it is for 2021, and and this will be the first Olympic Games that you're actually allowed two K1 paddlers and two K2 paddlers from the country. Um, still only one K4, um, yep. so Tom and John will both be paddling K1, and they'll also paddle the K2, along with uh, Jordan and Riz in K2, and then there's a K4. I don't think that any of that's official yet. Um, yeah. But I think that's might be where where it's heading. I don't know. That's just my opinion. But yeah. I'm pretty sure Tom and Jean will be racing K1. Uh, having these two guys here, Tom has got this X factor about him that he's he has this turn of speed when he wants to. That he can be, go from sitting next to you and then three strokes later have half a boat. And once he he's learned how to use that. But I think once he really hones in on that skill internationally, he'll be fighting for the podium at the Olympic Games. Jean, he's one of those guys that just goes out there and he dots every I and crosses every T. You know, he goes out there and trains perfectly every day. He goes out there. It's, if you take one stroke out of place, he'll be on you. Or if not, in front of you. <laughs> I think. So he's, he's there. He's a hard trainer, hard worker. And really fast over the K1 as well. You put those, combine those two guys into a K2 with a guy that plays with the throttle in the front and, and Jean that's Mr. Consistent in the back. And you, you don't know where that K2 is going to go except forwards. Yeah. Um, then you've also got uh, Jordan and Riz in the K2 as well. That the last couple of years have been in K2 finals at World Champs and, and constantly around that. You know, four, fifth, six sort of space, that middle of the field, they'll come up and get a win in the 500 here or there. And so they're on the money as well. So when you've got two K2 crews that are so close to being on the podium, yeah. you know, it's going to be exciting with one more year under their belt to actually hone in on their skill and their race plan and everything else that I think that we've got a real good chance or Australia's got a really good chance of coming out of Tokyo 2020, 21. Yeah, with another couple of medals, you know, one if not two. Um, the K4 as well, it's exciting. It's gone from a thousand meters down to 500. So a lot of people are changing their race plan and race tact, and and the build of athlete in the 500 K4 500 is changing. Yeah. Um, so I think that they've got some work under their under their belt that they need to get done. But also, we've never had a team selected this far out from them in the big games. And what Australia does really well is we, we hone our skill, our K4 skill really well. So even though we might not be the biggest team there, yeah, with a couple of seasoned guys, you've got Murray Stewart and, and Lockie Tamino, both, both Olympic medalists. Yeah, with, with their experience going into a second game, well, 
actually they're all going into a second games, but you know, a couple of Olympic medalists there and a couple of fourth places there, you know that those guys aren't gonna let you know, they'll get every rock uncovered. Like they'll they'll do everything that they can. So yeah. having this amount of lead into the games I think is gonna be pretty cool for those guys as well. Yeah, so absolutely. I think that we'll have a successful team. Our our women are doing well um, in the team. My little sister, Bernadette, well, she's made the team again. Well, not yeah. the team again. She's made the team in canoe. She's basically swapped sports after um, a bit of a cancer scare in 2016, uh, which wasn't all part of the team, but she didn't make the team in 2016. She kind of walked away from the sport a little bit and started up canoe paddling. And yeah, I, saw, yeah. I saw her paddling the sup to, just to begin with. And then yeah. I think Nathan Luce, I remember, contacted me about what they should be do, using in the stand-up stuff. It was, um, yeah, it's been good to, to see that progress, her and uh, Josephine. Yeah, Nathan that's Finn. it. Yeah. And so, that's amazing. Like, it's, it's like one of those things, and you'd know it, Boothie, as well. It's, it's a skill transfer. Like, yeah. it, you, you already knew how to train. You already knew how to race. Mm. It's just that you you change sports a couple of times. Like you didn't always do stand up paddle boarding. You came from yeah. a paddling background, and it's you can still race on an ocean ski. Yeah. It's not the it's the skill transfer that she had. So this I think last year she got a fourth in the five k. She would have been the first uh, woman ever, I think, to win medals in K one and C one at World Cups. Yeah, so, yeah, definitely. That's pretty a pretty cool. awesome achievement and being able to, yeah, do that skills transfer. It's pretty cool that you can actually do that if you spend that time focusing on the skill because, yeah, as you say, you know how to power, you know how to train. It's just like just getting those little things right and then you're like, okay, cool. Now it's just like, bang, we're on. Like it just yeah. whatever whatever sport it is and it is quite nice to be able to do. Will we will be seeing you um, at the, the Shrimp Partners Race Week at the end of the year or any surf ski races? Uh, I th possibly, very possibly. I've been doing a lot of ocean ski paddling at the moment and really been enjoying it as well. Yeah. And now that we don't have any kayaks or anything else to really else to do, um, yeah, we're still doing a lot of coaching and mentoring with young kids and, and the job that we're doing with Paddle Australia is a lot of their youth development stuff. So besides that, I'm actually, my fitness is in the ocean ski. I'd rather spend time in that. So yeah. I'd love to get over to Perth for the week and um and have a good crack at that but uh yeah, we just have to wait and see <laughs> well I'm, I'm sure you'll be there and i'm glad i planted the seed now so i hope i'll see you here in my backyard which is it is now um you, you say we a bit are you working a mentoring coaching role with Palo australia now um helping the the next team come through or is that something that you you're focusing on are you, are you coaching is your lifeguarding like what is what is next for you? Like, or are you going to keep, we jump back in the kayak for the next cycle? Like what, no, what do you think? I won't be in the kayak the next cycle, but um, now a new sort of role that we've taken on is this um, youth development through Paddle Australia. So we're trying to bring that professionalism and the, that sort of trainability that we had as a, as a senior for so long and, yeah. and filter that down into the younger ranks and, and show them what they can do and, and so just some small, simple things that we take for granted as, as I'm calling myself an elite athlete here. Um, of course you're an elite athlete. <laughs> I try to be. You're talking about your Olympic gold medalist. If you're, not, if you're not an elite athlete, who is? <laughs> so, well, I'm trying to take those small skills that we learn and, and give them to those kids earlier in their career so that you know, they're not making the same mistakes or that we're trying to fast track some of the 
the development. Um, we're out there coaching the coach. We're trying to um, not headhunt out of surf life saving, but yeah. go around and say, you've got so much potential here and go down that same path that I did that I still love the surf and we don't want you to give up surf because that's what you, that's what's made you good. And we want you to continue to do that. But why don't you just dip your toe into the kayak every once in a while and, and uh, you know, what we have to offer is an Olympic pathway. Um, so yeah, it's, it's pretty much how long is a piece of string is what my role is at the moment. <laughs> yeah. Well, it is something special. Like I know that I still like jumping in the kayak and, and paddling it just in the flat water. Like there's sometimes there's no better feeling than actually just feeling the run of the boat and actually hitting the catch and making sure it's running. Like I still go down and paddle with a few of the guys over here and it is a special feeling. So uh, the kids probably don't know what they're missing when they're paddling that 18 kilo big, heavy ski and <laughs> yeah. surf. It's, uh, it's not quite the same feeling, but it is a lot of fun. And I'm sure you'll do a fantastic role in uh, that role with Paddle Australia. Is, um, is there anything else you wanted to add before we jumped off air? Um, we've, we've covered a, a heap of a heap stuff. <laughs> yeah. I'm very happy to, for you to allocate so much time with uh, me today. Um, is there any sponsors, uh, friends, anybody you want to give a shout out to before we jump off air? Oh, it's always the friends and family because they're the, they're always the biggest sponsor that you have is your, your friends and family. But then I've always had body science has always looked after me. Oakley's always looked after me. Uh, Zyke's looking after me. It's Nello have looked after me for, for who knows how long. Um, yeah. They, these are the companies that a lot of them we had before Beijing as well. And they're the ones that we want to look after. So I guess the only point is, um, yeah, for young kids out there looking for sponsors, look after your sponsors and create that relationship with them that you know, I'm, not always, I'm not always going to be a paddler, but I've got that relationship with my sponsor that I can always walk in and, and, uh, and show them you know, something special, be mates with them and be friends. So uh, those guys have been special. And, and yeah, but Boothie, thanks for having a chat, mate, because just talking about this sort of stuff i feel like we're just chatting away and we're not actually recording this but i feel like we're just chatting away and it it's good it makes me relive some of the, the memories that i have and it makes me after this go away and and want to help some more young kids or older kids you know whoever it is just to go out there and enjoy their paddling and enjoy their sport whether it's kayaking or surf or swimming or whatever it is um yeah it's it's that skill transfer that the lessons are the same it's just the sport might be different yeah and absolutely it's it's just awesome to hear your stories and obviously dive into the mindset of a champion like yourself and just see the different challenges you had along the way and the successes and the things that made you angry and all yeah. those different things that you probably don't hear normally so it's been really nice chatting with you today mate and uh, yeah, really really appreciate your time uh, thanks baby cheers matey cheers mate see you later yeah